Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenhaft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I, we get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's going on in pop culture. This week has been as crazy as any other. Kanye West just announced he's running for president, forcing all kinds of unwarranted political speculation. He's got the full support of Elon Musk and has had Mark Cuban reach out to him volunteering support. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with billionaires. The 4th of July happened with hundreds of thousands of Americans ignoring requests to safely distance and minimize large gatherings. Los Angeles, our home, sounded like the Civil War battle for 12 hours when an endless stream of fireworks ignited around the city. These people seemingly just seem to think that being contrarian assholes is patriotic and they would rather risk uh, disease and widespread fire hazards all in the name of America, the country they claim to love but not care enough to take care of. The coronavirus deaths are, as of today, currently just above 132,000, with still no national plan or even the remote hint of one for the upcoming fall and flu season, not to mention schools starting up again in less than two months with cases skyrocketing around the country. Trump is still denying that there's a problem. Meanwhile, in a funny twist, along the Arizona-Mexico border, Mexico has blocked any Americans from entering due to the coronavirus. Apparently, they think we're disgusting, diseased people who shouldn't be allowed to enter their country, and really, who can blame them? They're mostly right, although some of us, I assume, are good people. In entertainment news, Hamilton dropped on Disney+, Plus, which we'll dive into here in a bit. The Last of Us 2 is still conquering the video game realm, although the creator Neil Druckmann has had to take to social media to show the endless onslaught of racist, homophobic, sexist, and disgusting comments he's received in the past couple weeks from some in the gaming community regarding his decision in making the main character of the sequel to Females. Summer Taylor was a Black Lives Matter protester who was killed by a car intentionally speeding into the group on a closed highway. The incident is still being investigated, but the driver, Dewit Khalid, has been arrested. And you know who hasn't been arrested yet? The police officers who killed Brianna Taylor. So with all that said, we're still in crazy times. And so, Tom, please tell me, how's that day? Jesus. Yeah, I like how your, um, your intros, which I love started off as kind of informational (laughs) you're just getting more and more emotionally charged and angry and editorializing as we go which i'm not complaining about i think it's great but it started off as like here's what's going on the world is crazy and now it's they still have been fucking arrested for killing brianna taylor (laughs) which i agree with obviously arrest the cops who killed brianna taylor please but um it's just great and it's uh, it puts me in a very particular mood as we start the podcast. I want to like just start breaking shit. Um, There's just not a lot of good news to say. No, there really isn't. Like the only good news this week, I guess, is Hamilton's available to watch. That's cool. Um, yeah, like really though, there's been no other good news that I can really think of. It's hard, man. It's really hard not to just sink into uh, into depression right now, right? It's like, it's really challenging. I mean, we all have our moments, but it's hard to just keep those to moments, I'm feeling, unfortunately. Um, you know, yeah. I, have my da- I have my days like everyone else, but yeah, right now, it's just a matter of just kind of like hanging on, just kind of riding this out and uh, hoping that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I'm sure there is eventually, but it's yeah. going to take a while for us to get there. Shell received word that she's definitely not going back to campus um, before January. So she knows that at the very least, there's going to be at least five more months of working from home, um, according to her work right now. So How'd she take the news? 
I mean, like, it's one of those weird things where she just started the job. So this yeah. is kind of, she, we were doing the math. I think she was in her office less than 50 times or she, by the end of this year, she will have only entered her office less than 50 times. And that's because we, she was only working there for less than two months before all this happened. And, uh, yeah, so she's kind of gotten used to it, but I think without, you know, we're new to the city. So I think the isolation we're kind of extra isolated because we just happened to move to LA right as this was happening. So, you know, we have you, but you're, you're isolating. You have, you know, like some breathing problems. So I'm, you know, very conscious of trying to, you know, make sure I don't bring anything to you, even though I've been pretty good. And, you know, but like, we don't have our friends and family close to us right now, you know, so we only have Skype and Zoom calls and all those other things. And so I think that has kind of taken its toll and just the days bleeding together, like at one point, you know, we were just taking our dog on a walk at 1 a.m. and it didn't seem to matter. You know, we're like, whatever, you know, like we don't have to be up at a specific time. Who cares? You know, yeah. and uh, so it was it's been like that lately. So, yeah, we're both kind of floating in and out of a funk where we're kind of like having to, you know, look out for each other to see who, which one's the downest right now. We're just taking a lot of naps. Yeah, naps. Naps are great. I mean, uh, you know, to. Well, first off, I'm sorry. That obviously sucks. Um, but no, we're fine. Like, we're in a uh, much better position than so many other people. We can't really complain. I, I understand. But, you know, it's it's also okay to uh, to feel your feelings and to let yourself be down. You know, you can't sure, every yeah, time yeah. every time you're in a funk or bummed out, you can't just block it out by saying, oh, it could be worse. I'm not as bad off as other people because that just, you know, it's great to have that empathy for others and to have that overall understanding of uh your your privilege in a lot of instances and your place in the overall world but if you keep suppressing it that way you know that's not healthy either um, yeah but i'm also you know it's good it is good that you guys have each other and you can look out for each other that is obviously very helpful yeah phil and i we haven't seen we haven't seen each other since uh Mar- it was march, march something right? yeah yeah when yeah. we watched uh ballad of buster scruggs that was ballad our last buster night scruggs together at my apartment yeah um yeah hopefully we can see each other soon i mean i don't know it was it was looking like we were trending towards um maybe having some time this summer where things would be okay enough to at least uh you know hang out in a one-on-one situation you know as the cases were leveling off but you know obviously now there's been a new explosion in the south and the west of the country, including Los Angeles, which seems like has become one of the epicenters of the country, at least in terms of new cases per day. Um, and speaking of explosions in Los Angeles, how about last night? Jesus, man, it was nonstop. I've heard I've heard some people say, uh, both sides. I've heard a lot of people say, like, I haven't heard something like that on July 4th in a while in Los Angeles. I've heard others say, oh, it's like that every year. Maybe in certain neighborhoods, it's like that every year. In my experience, this is my eighth July 4th living in LA. And that was by far the loudest, the most, like, constant, nonstop stream of fireworks going off I have ever heard in my life. I walked outside this I walked outside this morning and I don't know if it was directly caused by the fireworks but there we had a smog warning this there was a nasty air and you could actually see just the smog and smoke in the air in the in the morning and I I was like I don't know if this is just smog or just 
the thousands of rockets that went off in the city yesterday, just like the aftermath of that. I don't know. It smelled like a bad city this morning when I woke up. I'm sure it was uh, at least partially related to that because, you know, obviously L.A. has had its smog issues in the past. But when you compare L.A. now versus the, you know, the real dregs of the smog um, epidemic, I guess they had back in like the 70s and 80s. You know, they've done a lot to temper that. And now, especially with the pandemic, uh, the last few months, I know it's gone down pretty significantly. As we've seen all around the world, we've seen Mother Nature kind of fighting back and making recoveries. That's one, That's been one of the, the only bright spots of the coronavirus pandemic, right? As we're seeing certain places um, seem to recover, which has been great. So I would assume, yeah, that... Uh, some smogginess you saw this morning was a result of the hundreds of thousands of fireworks that went off last night. I mean, I went, I live in a, a four story building that, uh, you know, has an, uh, a rooftop open air garage. So you can park on the very top of it, which is five stories up. And I went up there at like 11 PM, uh, just to see like, okay, how far in every direction can I see? Cause I can see up past Burbank to the Burbank Mountains in one corner and then I can see towards Studio City in another corner from my apartment and it was everywhere it was all four corners wherever I looked within five seconds I would see more fireworks popping off including a couple different spots I would say within there were definitely three spots I saw in the probably 15 minutes I was up there three different locations within 50 feet of my building setting off fireworks it was nice yeah yeah, I saw those videos. Like we're on the ground level, so we mostly heard it. There, I, I saw very few, um, but it was just like this boom, 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 boom all night. Like it was going till I went to bed at like one or one thirty last night, and it was still going then. So, uh, yeah, it was just a constant. Like never, like I said in the opening, it was like I, I thought of the Civil War. I was like, it seems like there's just cannons going off everywhere around us. Yeah, I was up. But- I was up late, and I I would say it's it's really stopped around like two thirty three. It was you know pretty much done. You would hear an occasional random one, and then I I remember finally uh, falling asleep around like four, and it was pretty pretty much done by then. Well, thank God. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, you told me. Phil has a dog, Ralph, and I'm glad Ralph wasn't too worried about it because I know that's a big, big problem for a lot of pet owners. So their dogs freak out. I have cats, and they they always seem a little concerned if they're out. Uh, I'll let my cats out onto the balcony when the weather's nice, or just to let them, you know, go sit and catch some sun or some heat if they can. They love it, and they'll just like sleep out there on my uh, chair. I have like a very, like a very small little balcony area. And, you know, if they're outside and the fireworks start start popping off, they'll run in. But they don't, like, panic. They don't freak out. They, they just seem annoyed by it. So they were very annoyed all night long. Just kind of looking at me like, dude, when is this going to fucking stop? I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, Ralph's pretty good. We used to, I mean, we didn't this year, obviously. But in most years past, we have taken him with us to fireworks shows whenever we've gone somewhere. So he's actually, like, been sitting next to us during a lot of that when the actual things were going on in the sky above us. So he's pretty numb to that stuff. He's a pretty chill dog in that respect. He's a pretty chill dog in general, I think. Dude, our fucking neighbor, I almost went and left a nasty note on her door 
Um, we have a na- I live in a, I don't even know how to describe it, what, what the name of it is, but basically you walk in there and there's a courtyard and you're kind of in this, yeah, so you're, you're in the middle of everyone's apartment. So you're kind of surrounded by everybody. And yeah, it's a small, a small apartment complex with a center courtyard area that has the, um, like, hangout areas. Like, people put their chairs and tables right outside their units. And Is there a pool or no? I forget. No, no, there's no pool. No I pool. wish there was. But anyway, but yeah, our it's neighbor. Like, it's, like that, it's like that, you know, hollowed out center courtyard type of complex. Yeah, and our neighbor, she leaves her dog. And I think she, I, to, I was told by another neighbor that she puts her dog just in the bathroom and it's this little small dog and all it does is yelp. And I swear it yelps for at least four to five hours nonstop and just endlessly. And it's just, I don't know. I love dogs and it's, it's kind of a mixture of like being annoyed, but also just being like, lady, if it, if the dog just needs somewhere to be like, just bring it over, you know, like, well, I'd rather keep the dog in here and have it quiet than listen to it fucking yelp all day. But uh, she's, She's a crazy lady who we live across uh, the way from, and other neighbors. She's kind of the like black sheep of the of the of the building that I found out. Like every time there's like a conversation <laughs> I've had with other neighbors, they're like, "Yeah, yeah," and then of course there's Stephanie, and I'm like, "Yeah, fucking Stephanie," and this, and everybody just knows. And so, so she's wait, the does, problem. So does her dog is her dog yelping when Stephanie's out of the apartment, like when she's out? gone doing errands or at work or whatever she yeah no when when it's gone for like long stretches and but neighbors have told me she's left for like 24 hour stretches like and not come home and the dog's just been like left in there before and they've like had huge fights because i I was i had a whole conversation i had a whole gossipy conversation with some of my other neighbors about it and they were like oh yeah yeah it's everyone knows it's the biggest problem in this building is that dog and that she won't and not so much the dog you don't want to blame the dog because it's just not getting the attention or the care that it needs. So there's, yeah, but she's this crazy lady. She cries and wails and she keeps her door open. So you can constantly, and she has a voice like this and she's on the phone and then she just screams about her son who doesn't love her. And you're just like, this bitch is crazy. Anyway. Wait, the, the woman cries and wails as well or the dog? The woman cries and wails uh, like at Wait, least once a, at, at least once a week. I hear this woman crying from her apartment about something on the phone. I've heard her screaming about boyfriends dumping her. Her son doesn't love her. Um, she broke her oh leg. God. It was it, she's just a uh, she's a mess. And you're just like this lady's crazy. Um, and does I, she leave the dog in the bathroom? all the time or just when she leaves and that's why the dog yelps when she leaves and that's why the dog just yelps i'm like get this dog a crate or like train it somehow like there's a way to avoid that but that doesn't happen but so she probably leaves them in the bathroom so if it shits and pisses everywhere it's like in the toilet or in the bathtub or something yeah but the dog just oh, freaks man, out for brutal. for hours on end this dog freaks out so that's that was something that was happening today um, and, and speaking of dogs freaking out, that's just a constant problem. But this neighbor, you know what she said to me, man, we, we just moved in and we were talking to her and we were like, yeah, yeah. You got any like restaurants around here that you'd recommend? She's like, you, uh, you guys ever been to this place called cold stone? It's an ice cream place. And I was just like, yeah, fuck. I've been to cold stone. That's what you're going to recommend in Los Angeles. I've had McDonald's too lady. And, uh, I don't know. She's, she's a weirdo. 
And that's what she recommended as a restaurant. Not like, do you know a good place to get ice cream in the neighborhood? No, yeah. <laughs> you asked for a <laughs> restaurant and she said Cold Stone. Yeah, and our other neighbor was much more helpful. She was the one who was like, go to Paco Taco. And that's where we went with you that one night. Yeah, that was fun. That'd be like, I'm trying to think of a, another comparison to that. And it's like, I, I can't even. Like, It'd hey, be like, uh, we, we need to buy some, you know, my my wife just got a new job and we need some like kind of, she needs some fancier clothes for work. You got any recommendations? And she's like, well, you know, there's that, that there's Victoria's Secret. Have you tried yeah. there? It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah, it's like, hey, I'm looking for some, like, a really good date night. And she's just like, there's this Arby's down on Pico. And I don't know. I don't even like, oh, God. Even fast food, I'm not an Arby's fan. I have not had it. I don't think I've had any fast food since I've been here. Like, we've had, well, Chinese and, like, Chipotle. I think that's the closest I've had to. uh, to Veggie Grill, I guess, is technically fast food. Oh, yeah, I've had Veggie Grill. That's about, that's that's good fast food. Yeah, I haven't like had you, like Jack in the Box okay in the In and Out Burger. I haven't. I have. I was actually like, I was. I actually had a thought the other day, like or yesterday. I was like, I haven't had In and Out Burger yet. I don't know why. I should. That's I should just, crazy. You yeah, should make an exception for that. I actually, yeah, I almost had a moment where I was like, I'm just gonna drive across town or wherever because there actually aren't any that's like immediately close. So I'd have to drive like 15 or so, so minutes to get to one, and it's just like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just go do that today. That'll be. That's go all I drive. have. And that, that's an excursion because you're going to have to drive 15, 20 minutes and then wait for another 20 to get your food because those lines are long as shit. Yeah. You can expect I, to wait in that drive through line for a solid 15 minutes usually. Yeah. But it's I mean, totally we've, worth it. Yeah. Our, our schedules are open, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, true. might, yeah, might it, as well. Honestly, whenever I think of like these, I'm talking about, you know, over the past four months, whenever I can think of something like that, that I just know is going to be an activity, it's exciting. It's like, oh, this is, this will be something to do. I'll drive across town to go to this particular in and out. Sure. Why not? That's a thing. Uh, Shell and I took an excursion to go to the Ripped Bodice, which is a romance novel only store. It's nothing but romance novels from a, a wide variety of subgenres of romance. Um, it was pretty funny. Like, or, I mean, like, you know, fun. I, there are cute variations on a theme that I kind of cracked me up because, you know, there's like modern day versions. There's the fantasy. There's vampire. There's teen versions. There's like Christian where it's like a lot of just looking and touching, not a lot of fucking. Then there's like the, <laughs> then there's the vulgar ones, which is like she took his cock in her mouth. Like there's that kind. And then there's like, there's just a whole spectrum of versions of the subgenre and the store specializes it it's one of the only romance novel stores in the country apparently so that was our excursion this week what, what's the name of it so you can shout it out to the fans it is the ripped bodice in uh, los angeles bodice. yeah awesome b-o-d-i-c-e right that's bodice i think b-o-d-e-s-s or something oh like s- god like goddess or something i think so i think that's oh, the subject I think the rip bot. I could be wrong. I'm sorry. I think the rip bodice is the kind of like Fabio with his chest out on the front cover, like golden god. Oh, like a type. body. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could be. Did wrong, you see? Did you see Fabio on any covers? There were those like sections. There were there yeah. was like the Danielle Steele and the. What was the, the Nor- weirdest? What was the weirdest section you saw? Like the most like I, I can't believe this was the section. Did anything um, about? 
Well, there was like weird, like there was a children's section. It wasn't so much romance, but it was like explaining sex to your children. And then there was like, I was pleasantly surprised to find that there's like a, a gay romance section and a, a specifically a trans section. I was like, there's a whole trans like romance wow. novel subgenre. Like I didn't know that. So th- those are, I don't know they were weird, but I was surprised to find them there. That's cool. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I guess if you're a, a store entirely dedicated to reading and romance, um, you, you should be pretty inclusive. It would benefit. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an a interesting business. Yeah, it's an interesting genre. That's cool. That sounds like fun. I did, um, Sarah and I, uh, one activity. I don't even know if I told you this, but um, we went back to the drive-in. We did our second drive-in trip this past week. What'd you see? We saw a double feature of Jaws and Tremors at uh, the Mission Tiki drive-in. It's like almost an hour away. Uh, So... So you're fresh on on Jaws. Um, the, the you just saw it on the fucking big screen. I sure did. Yeah, uh, just on Thursday, we um, this uh, group called Beyond Fest uh, in L.A., which hosts a film festival at the Egyptian Theater every fall, uh, late September slash early October. Um, partner with uh, the American Cinematheque, which is the organization that used to own the Egyptian until very recently netflix just bought it out and the arrow theater which is near you um but them and uh this other group called uh i'm forgetting but um beyond fest has the a genre festival in the fall and then at the egyptian which apparently is still going to happen even under new netflix ownership they've worked out a deal uh basically once or twice a month on fridays or saturday nights they would um just host like really fun genre-based uh, double features, triple features, and me and my buddies and stuff used to go all the time until coronavirus hit. And um, just in the past few weeks, Beyond Fest announced that uh, at the Mission Tiki Drive-In, um, I don't know if it was supposed to be a weekly attraction, but they announced their first double feature, which I'm blanking on what it was now, but it sold out in 30 minutes. Oh, was it and, Jurassic Park and something? I know Jurassic Park was a big drive-in hit for a while there, actually. Or for the last few uh, weeks, I should say. No, not 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 this particular event. It wasn't Jurassic Park. I think it was I think it was Ghostbusters and something else. But anyway, um it sold out immediately. And I was actually thinking about going, and I was like, I remember that afternoon when they said it was gonna go on sale. I was like, Oh yeah, let me double check that. Nope, it had sold out. So they announced they were going to do Jaws and Tremors, so I put a note in my calendar like, oh, make sure to go buy tickets when this is on sale. Um, I didn't even know if Sarah could go with me because she's kind of the only person I'm seeing right now with the coronavirus issues and my own health issues that prevent me from being too uh, rebellious or forthright, like why you and I haven't seen each other. Um, but I was like, fuck it, I'll just go alone even if she doesn't want to go. But thankfully she did. Uh, again, it sold out in under an hour. Then they announced um, this coming Thursday they're doing Texas Chainsaw on Evil Dead. That sold out. So I guess I guess they're going to do it weekly um, for the time being. It looks like every Thursday they're going to have some cool double feature, and it's going to sell out pretty much instantly. So if people are interested, I would check out, follow the Beyond Fest Instagram page or the Mission Tiki Drive-In 
Instagram page to check it out. But anyway, we went. It was a blast. Um, Jaws played first uh, and then Tremors afterwards. So we were there from about 8 p.m. until like 1, 1, 1 30 in the morning. Yeah, uh, it was it was super fun. It was really, really fun. It was great to see it. It was funny to see it with a full crowd. I've seen Jaws in theaters several times now. And uh, obviously my first time at a drive-in. And so, you know, when you go to a, a retro screening. That was your first time the, at a drive-in? Uh, only my, well, my second time. I, my first time at a drive-in was oh. six weeks ago. Yeah. I, I yeah, I grew, I grew up with them. I went to them all the time. Because I, like double features were pretty regular as a kid. Yeah, they didn't, um, they didn't, uh, I didn't, didn't sorry, have one like near where I grew up. So I just never, it was never a big thing for me, but I'd always wanted to. So it was very thrilling. Yeah. Some of those double features are like embedded in my brain, like junior and Apollo 13 or angels in the outfield and lion King. Like just ones that I'm like, I definitely saw those back to back at the same, like sitting on the top of my mom's van. Yeah, yeah, I have very vivid memories of going to the drive-in a lot. And we well, actually you, went, yeah, we, we went a lot. Um, I, Shell and I went a lot um, before we moved out here. They're still, they're still running out there in Ohio. Yeah, I was going to say, you should take Shell because they're still, they're playing stuff right now. I know Knives Out is still playing there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they, But they do get some new titles. Like when The Hunt was out, they were playing it. Um, we saw that Vin Diesel movie. Uh, Blood, Blood, Bloodshot. Bloodshot, yes. Um, but also what I was going to say about Jaws, you know, it was sold out. So, you know, there are cars all around us and, you know, big moments that would happen that at a retro screening with a sold out crowd where people would normally laugh or clap along, like, you know, a movie, everyone who is there has already seen, so you can react to it. Um, you know, in a theater, you normally get like applause or laughter or hooting and hollering at the drive-in. It was funny. Like, I think the first time it happened was when, Jody, uh, Sheriff Brody sees the shark for the first time and then has the, you're going to need a bigger boat line. And suddenly everyone started honking their horns and flashing their headlights. <laughs> That's great. Uh, which that turned out to become like a big thing. So when he finally, you know, blows up the shark at the end, the, all of every car starts going nuts and then tremors. People were just doing it all the time. And I just started doing it at like non- uh, non-classic moments to see if it would catch on and it never would. And I just looked like a weirdo one car just honking. But it was a really, really fun time. It was great just to get in the car and go do something. Um, obviously, Jaws is a masterpiece, one of the greatest movies ever. We're going to talk about it later in this episode. And Tremors is something that holds up. I watched it uh, probably two years ago for the first time in a while and I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it. Uh, or how much I thought it, it held up because I hadn't seen it since the 90s. Um, and then watching it again this past week on a big screen, it's a, Tremors is a really fun movie, man. I think it has it has a great group of characters. Uh, the effects are really well done. For such a low-budget movie, they pull off some really cool effects in that movie. And yeah. I give, that, I give that, that whole production props. I think Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are just a great duo to lead that movie it's such a blast um not on the level of jaws but perfectly appropriate second film to a double feature i would say and jaws yeah yeah, one of the 10 greatest movies ever made yeah like i uh i really love tremors and tremors too they were both pretty big staples of hbo when we were younger and i i watched them pretty endlessly and i i agree i think tremors holds up i think it's a fantastic fun a great premise there's many sequels 
that I, I did not see. They got up to like six or something like that. After two, I kind of gave up. But um, they're yeah, they're a great fun, and I. I like those double features that they're doing because I can instantly picture the posters of them. Like, you know, Jaws is obviously the famous Jaws coming up in the water poster. And I know Tremors is the same thing with the um, beast coming up from underground. I'm sure it was a direct homage to the Jaws poster. And even like when you say Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead, I'm like, oh, a chainsaw double feature. Like, that's pretty fun. Exactly. And yeah, I think I'm assuming they picked Tremors um, because it, it is probably the the best Jaws ripoff movie. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the, the most original and exciting and fun. So I'm looking at the, uh, the drive-in theater right now. So they, they have four screens there. Obviously, if people don't know a drive-in, you buy a ticket and that gets you access to a double feature. That's pretty much, um, that's par for the course at any drive-in. So right now you can see a horror double feature of the relic and the lodge. That's one option. Uh, another option is the Dave Bautista movie that is finally out, My Spy, with Knives Out. Uh, screen three is the Steve Carell movie that Phil just saw, Irresistible, mm. with the uh, that racist Mel Gibson's movie, Force of Nature. I guess that's like an action movie. Yeah, I saw, I mean, I've seen the title and pictures of him in it. I have no idea what it is, though. And then uh, the last one, which is by far, I think, your best option, is a double Bill fe- uh, Bill Murray feature, Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. So 10 bucks, you can go see two movies. You get out of the, the apartment for an entire evening. It's uh, You can do a lot worse than go to the drive-in. So everybody look around, look see what's the closest near you. I would drive two hours if you needed to because what the hell else are you doing, right? Yeah, I assume they had you tune into a radio station, right, to listen yeah, to it. In that's your a, yeah, that's how it works. They give you a low FM channel that they just once you get there, they let you know. Uh, you know, this screen is this radio station, and you're good to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. When when I was a kid, they used to just have a box that you would have to roll your window down and kind of pick yeah, up. Yeah, the and speaker put, you would have to grab, it, right? Yeah. So it's it's come a long way. But <laughs> sure I was trying. I, I was trying to think. I Shell and I went to see like Civil War. And 22 Jump Street on, like, early dates in a drive-in. I think those those might have been the last two I saw at a drive-in. But? Uh, yeah, I, sorry. I, I had myself muted for a second. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, uh, we, when we went to go see Bloodshot, I don't even remember what the second movie was. We didn't stay for it because Sarah had to work early in the morning. She's actually been working pretty much nonstop throughout this Um coronavirus so she is not like us who have you know nights don't matter going to bed walking your dog at one in the morning who cares she uh so um but she was a trooper and she stayed late for tremors which i very much appreciated because she got like four hours of sleep before work the next day um but yeah we had that that was a great time that's kind of the only exciting thing i did this past week other than that it was a lot of staying at home going on walks reading books watching stuff uh, trying not to go crazy All right. Well, with that said, do you want to move on to the only good thing, speaking of watching stuff that we actually had going on this week, which is a little little Broadway show called Hamilton? Yes, sir. Let's do it. Smarter 
All right. From Wikipedia, Hamilton is described as a musical with music, lyrics, and a book by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It tells the story of American founding father Alexander Hamilton. It's inspired by the 2004 biography Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. The show's music draws heavily from hip-hop as well as R&B, pop, soul, and traditional style show tunes. The show also casts non-white actors as the founding fathers and other historical figures. Owing to this use of modern storytelling methods, Hamilton has been described as being about, quote, America then as told by America now. It started off Broadway in 2015, and by 2016, it was a full-blown cultural sensation. I'm sure you heard about it. The cast were immediate stars. Tickets were outrageously in demand. The soundtrack was selling record numbers. Lin-Manuel Miranda became a household name. They performed it numerous times for the Obamas, even saying loving it was the only thing they could agree with the Cheneys on. And uh, now it dropped early on Disney Plus because of the coronavirus. It was supposed to come out in theaters, but Disney has granted us early access as a reprieve from all the sadness in the world. So this show that has been coveted and one of the, one of the most coveted, coveted, I can't even get it out, coveted shows in recent years is now available for mass audiences to witness uh, in its full uh, version for the first time ever. And um, it's pretty rare for these things to be seen like this. So, you know, with all that kind of set up, Tom, you, uh, I guess we can kind of, I guess let's start with our context for, Seeing Hamilton, I, I, really briefly, you have seen the show, I have not, but we can talk a little bit more about that going into our experience watching this. But yeah, tell me, uh, tell me your Hamilton history. My Ham history. So Phil and I both lived in New York for a stretch. I lived in New York uh, much longer than he did, but neither of us were around when Hamilton finally came out on Broadway. So it was uh, this phenomenon that you and I both witnessed from afar. Um, I up until recently um you know i'm from massachusetts so whenever i go home for the holidays i try to make a point i've normally spent new year's eve in new york city uh, normally because fish my band is playing at madison square garden and i'll go there that's how i like to spend new year's eve because as a in general as a holiday new year's eve is not something i care about so if i'm not going to see uh fish at the greatest party in the world that night i'd rather just kind of like hang home and do my own thing um so that gives me a chance to go visit new york every year see old friends and uh cliff and i got my younger brother cliff and i got into a little tradition of um trying to see a show on broadway if uh, we did that trip and um I saw Hamilton on Broadway, I think, late 2016, I believe, maybe 2017. It was, you know what it was? Um, the the month after Lin-Manuel Miranda left, because I remember uh, we were looking up a time to go to New York to see it, and... Uh, the prices were just insane. Like you can apply for the lottery, obviously, and try to get in that way. 
but if you're going to try to get scalp tickets, um, you're looking at like $800 tickets. And then with Lynn manuel For shitty Miranda, seats. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it's it's a Broadway stage. So, you're there, you know, it's not you're not like at a 10,000 seat venue. So, like, every seat is is kind of okay. Um, and where, where Hamilton actually was staged, which is at the Richard Rogers Theater in New York, for anyone who knows, you know, not all Broadway theaters are created equally. Some are much older than others. Um, some have been restored. Some haven't. So considering uh, how successful Hamilton was... It actually wasn't on the nicest um, Hamil- uh, nicest Broadway stage, in my opinion, just in terms of like the actual uh, the seating. Um, it was in a, a, a venue with really small seats that were kind of cramped together, and my fat ass was uncomfortable. But the, the benefit of that is it wasn't enormous. So even if you were up in the balcony, it wasn't too bad, which is where we were for the first, first time I saw it. And we ended up going... A month that when Lin Manuel announced he was leaving and he set a date, the fall like the first month of tickets after that dropped by like eighty percent. We were like, well, okay, we'll just go see his understudy because I'm sure I'm sure the one guy who didn't create the show, who is Hamilton's number one pick to play Hamilton, is gonna do a pretty damn good job. And he did. That guy was incredible. Um so I saw it once, it blew me away. I became obsessed with it for a year straight before I stopped listening to the the original cast recording. And then on one of those uh, post-Christmas New Year's Eve trips uh, that Cliff and I went to go see Fish, my sister decided to tag along and said she she really wanted to see Hamilton. And she said, if we go see it with her, she will come see Fish with us, which she has never done on New Year's Eve. So I had one of the most fun days of my life on a New Year's Eve I believe it was 2018, um, where me and my brother and my sister went to go see Hamilton. And then we met uh, a few friends of mine for dinner at a seafood place uh, right outside Rockefeller Center. And then we went to see Fish that night for New Year's Eve with my sister, who had never seen him. And she had a blast. She loved Hamilton. Um, We ended up having actually really good seats that time. We just kind of, none of us knew. We thought we were up in the balcony and we weren't. We were in one of those like side little mini boxes, which was incredible because like we could actually, you know, they're just like folding chairs that they set out for you. So you're not cramped. You can like actually stretch out. Um, I was just going to say, I was telling you beforehand about our free tickets. Um, Yeah. Shell. Before I had access to my free tickets at jo- at my job, Shell had free tickets from one of her friends who was a doctor. So for the a couple years before that, we saw shows for free in one of those si- exact side boxes. Um, where yeah, so I just sprawled out at every show. Like yeah, it spoils just, you, man. When 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 we did that for Hamilton that one time, I was like, I looked at my brother and sister, and was like, how could we ever go back to normal seats? Which yeah, I would like, I would like those. spread out. I would set my drinks down on the floor. You know, I just like put my arms up. You know, you have like all this room in the world. The only yeah, downside, the, best. the only downside for me was we were kind of so close to the stage that you'd make, miss the back left corner. You couldn't see some of the action that was happening back there. Oh, that's uh, true. That's true. Thankfully for Hamilton, that wasn't a problem. Um, but yeah, so I, I have seen it twice. Um, I know Phil and I both, we tend not to listen to musicals before we see them for the first time. So 
I had it listened before, but the one thing I remember taking away, obviously, you know, Hamilton was an instant phenomenon. So by the time we saw it, you know, like I said, it was the first month without Lin-Manuel Miranda. So it had already been around for a while and had been this huge thing. And I had avoided pretty much all the music. And the thing I remember the most about that first viewing, so I've seen it twice in theaters, long story short, but the thing I remember most about that first viewing other than, you know, being blown away by it, I absolutely loved it, was how much the theater was into it and how obvious it was that pretty much everyone there had either seen it a bunch or had been listening nonstop. Like, normally you go see a show on Broadway, and I think for the most part, most of the people there are experiencing that show and that music for the first time, right? Um, Whether it's like, Unless even it's like it's, the jungle, but unless it's like the Lion King or some shit. Yeah, like, like maybe the Phantom of the Opera, but even Phantom of the Opera, I'm sure there are a bunch of people there who like know some things but don't know everything. This felt like a this felt like a fish crowd. This felt like a crowd of people who knew all the songs and were going back to see like their favorite band again. Like I remember, you know, the first big hit song that I guess would be like the equivalent of the single is My Shot, which is the the third song of the show, which is Hamilton's big like statement statement of intent. Um, and I, I just remember there was this like college age girl way up in front. She was like in the fourth row and she was just like bouncing along to it like she was at a concert. And she was just like every time the the song hits that downbeat, like we're going to take a shot. And she would always just like bang her head to that and i'm like dude this is like a fucking rock show and that the second act starts and it's the first time you meet thomas jefferson and it's played by um we were lucky enough to see um david diggs who plays uh marquis de lafayette in the first act and then thomas jefferson in the second act and when he comes out to play thomas jefferson that first time you know i didn't know he was about to play a new character i thought lafayette was back but everyone just started going nuts and applauding like a standing ovation basically for a character we ostensibly haven't met yet even though it's a guy we saw in the first act and my in my head i'm like why are they applaud i've never seen this before where they applaud the introduction of the second act of a character we've already seen in the show and then you realize quickly like oh wait he's playing a new character thomas jefferson who obviously is a fan favorite character in the second act of that show but to know that for everyone to applaud means that they all knew that already, you know, and this show is less than two years old at this point. It's like 18 months old. Um, Up until now with Disney plus, there's been no way for people to watch this show unless you have seen it on Broadway. There's no way to actually like put, put your eyes on it. So it was just, uh, it was phenomenal to see that, that reaction so quickly from the start of the show, I guess. Um, But yeah, I'm a huge fan. I think it's a, a, True work of art and a masterpiece. What about you, Phil? Um, okay, so my my ham uh, background is uh, just that I, I generally am a big fan of musicals. I think both of us are. We've seen a good yes. deal of Broadway musicals over the course of our lifetime. Uh, I, I've seen all the major ones, you know, like the the fucking the Lion Kings and the the Rents and the uh, the Phantom of the Operas and Les Mises of the World. Like I've seen all those. So like you know, I think you and I both have a pretty healthy appreciation for the genre generally. And even though I'm not like, I was not a theater kid, like obsessive, uh, 
nerd, whatever you want to say, like, uh, you know, I was not a theater nerd kid, but I, I have always loved musicals and always kind of kept up and seen the big shows. And uh, Hamilton was, of course, you know, you're, uh, you know, you don't live in New York. You're like, sure, that sounds great. I'm, I'm not going to be able to see that. A, I'm not going to New York anytime soon, as far as I know. And they're very expensive on top of that and high in demand. So it was just one of those things that for me, when I was living in Ohio through all this, it was kind of just like a, yeah, like once again, that's another show that I probably won't get around to seeing. I'll see the national tour. I'll see whatever. And I, you know, I did see shows, like you said, we lived in New York and I did see shows when I lived there and it was great. Um, and, but yeah, I, I've caught shows much later in their runs after their initial, um, yeah, after their initial Broadway run. So for me, usually when I'm seeing a show, it's well past its kind of hype phase. So Hamilton, especially so. It's interesting that now as someone who kind of, like you said, I did not listen to the songs. I didn't really have any knowledge of the show. I, I knew what it was about. I knew Lin-Manuel Miranda. I have seen In the Heights, um, the, the show, of the, the Broadway show of that. So actually I, that kind of prepped me more than anything, because I was very familiar, that show utilizes a lot of the same musical techniques that Hamilton does. And so that kind of prepared me. And on top of that, you know, just everyone talking about it, I, I, I knew the general gist of everything. So I, I was very excited to sit down and finally watch it. Very curious how it would translate. And generally, yeah, like you said, it's kind of hard with all that hype for me, you know, you've seen it, you've lived with it for a few years. My initial impression was just like, yeah, this is fantastic. Um, there's a few things that I, I thought were interesting that kind of nagged at me that I've thought about in the days since. And it's also been interesting kind of seeing the the cycle of this. You know, there was all the people who saw Hamilton on its first run and who saw, um, you know, they, they've already had their think pieces about the historical context, the accuracy, the race you know, uh, the swapping of races and the play, the, you know, everything has been written about already. So for me, it was kind of like, all right, time to play catch up now because I'm sure all the feelings I'm ha I'm having people have already had for years now. So it was interesting to kind of play catch up and watch the show. And yeah, like I said, I was really taken by it. Uh, we can kind of go into the specifics of the show or the songs or the cast, uh, or, you know, the way it was shot and presented on Disney Plus. Um, I did I did kind of want to talk about that, especially the direction it was. Yeah, I wanted to start there as well. Um, before before we get into that real quick, though, I just want to say, because you mentioned um, in the intro to all of this, you know, how we're not really. Well, you said two things. One was, you know, you're in Ohio, you hear about this new Broadway phenomenon and your thought is basically like, cool, hopefully I'll see that within a decade, basically, you know. And yeah. I think that's I think that's how most people view um, play big musicals that come out and make waves. Like there's a, I think that the latest one that I'm super excited to see um, that is probably I think it was on Broadway for about a year before you know obviously Broadway is closed for the rest of the year. Um, but Hades Town is a new musical that is the latest one making waves and everyone's super excited to watch and I can't wait to see it. Um, because of the way you and I both are, I haven't listened to the music yet, so I'm waiting and waiting, and I have the same thing in my mind at this point. You know, living in L.A., I'm like, well, eventually that'll there will be a national tour, and when it comes to L.A., I will be seeing that, but who knows how long that is. So there's that, and then there's also, you mentioned how, uh, how normally we don't get to see uh, a big phenomenon musical like this in this way like it like it's being presented on disney plus like you know as as a child les mis les miserables has always been 
my favorite musical. It was growing up for years. I've lived with that show for, you know, I'm 34 since I was like six. Uh, and my mom would play the, the CD and then seeing it on stage. And even that, you know, unless you get to catch a, a touring company, uh, the only things you can see besides like, you know, a big film adaptation, like the one from eight years ago or something, is like the the 10th or the 25th anniversary recordings, which are really just, you know, a camera set in place and the performers just singing to, like straight out. You know, it's not the actual choreographed stage performance like we yeah. don't really get to see that ever or if and you it's, do it's incredibly rare and one thing especially about the way this is shot is that it was filmed over two nights one with an audience where they caught a lot of wides and got a lot of the kind of masters of the show and then they recorded it a second time without an audience where they were able to kind of get in on the close-ups and have the cameras yeah. on the stage capturing things that otherwise would have been distracting for the crowd that was there so not that having those options of shooting it twice and having those close ups, it has a visual language to this. Hamilton does on the Disney on Disney Plus has a visual language that does not even compare to most of what you would see. Where it's like, yeah, they're going to set up the camera wide for the you know the most you'll get is like a Tony performance or something with a lot of cutting. Right. But otherwise, you're probably going to be sitting there looking at a wide shot of the whole stage. You're not going to get a lot of close ups or personal or I guess you know national theater. We talked about it. They put on some amazing shows. Um, but you can tell that those are shot a very specific way from a distance and, you know, really they're ultimately not ne- limited at what they can do. Like they can get creative and what they're able to capture, um, just as, you know, an artifact that they're able to present to people who can't make it to the stage performances is great and a very valuable thing. But, uh, yeah, they're just, there's no way you can capture, uh, the intimacy and the types of creative choices Hamilton was able to make without doing it the way that they did. Yeah, you would never be able to see Jonathan Groff spit the way you do in this version. Right, exactly. Or, yeah, just like a close-up of Hamilton's face as he's pondering, like, do I go say hi to, or go introduce myself to Aaron Burr? You know, that's probably the first shot of the this performance that we saw on Disney+. Plus of uh, a super close-up, like a very intimate close-up of like, wow, is he, that actually made me question for a moment, like, oh, this is obviously a shot we're seeing without the audience in in place. Is he uh, changing the way he performs, you know? Like, is he actually performing for the camera now as opposed to for an audience at a a stage performance? You just never get to see that. And Hamilton in particular is interesting because it's such a hit it's it's done so much for for broadway for musicals you know it's swept the tonys but it's also won the pulitzer it won kennedy center honors it it won lin-manuel the national medal of freedom from the president and it's a it's a story about this country's founding and its history um so i think there's a lot like a great a great historical novel or something that becomes uh, you know, required reading in high schools or something like that. I think there's a lot of value that Hamilton has in that way. So to present this in this way on Disney Plus now for a much wider audience, um, I think is super cool because I think it's a show that benefits everyone. I think everyone should try to see it. And this is obviously going to get millions more eyes on this show other than, you know, the like, like we talked about the cast recording being available on Spotify or something. And I've definitely worn that out, but to have the real thing now, um, 
is super unique and uh, I think genuinely valuable. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because, like you said, that when you list all those, you know, achievements that it won, you know, it swept the Tonys, it got the Freedom Award, the Pulitzer. It's kind of, uh, you know, sitting down to watch it. That's such an overwhelming burden for anything to carry. It's kind of like anyone sitting down to watch Citizen Kane at this point. You're like, of course, you're not. If you're just sitting down with the expectation of like arms crossed, is this going to be the greatest thing I've ever seen? You know, like it's probably going to disappoint you. So I was really trying to kind of keep my expectations low and just really hope to enjoy it, at, you know, and see what everyone was kind of getting hyped up about. And thankfully I did see all that. Like I was generally pretty prepared for the music and how, you know, the way it integrated a lot of different styles. You know, I said in the beginning, like there's a lot of hip hop and R and B and pop and soul. That's kind of mixed in with all these uh, traditional show tunes and a lot of elements. And I loved the way that those corresponded with the characters. You know, you have, um, the, the main cast doing a lot of rapping and you have the the king of england doing kind of this brit pop thing when when the the women are singing it almost turns into like an r&b girl group like it sounds like a like a destiny's child song or something and i love the way the, the how flexible he is with genre and the kind of and i think what's been so successful about the show generally is the kind of open arm open you know just everything is is valuable. So like if you're an older person who really likes show tunes, you're going to like the more classical elements of this. But if you're a young person who likes hip hop and wants to see more progressive musicals and all that, it's, it's great. But also the way that hip hop is used is the same as like verse. So it's, it's not just rap. It, it's almost, it's the whole thing is in verse. There's no actual, just, I mean, I shouldn't say no, but there's very, very limited, just actual speaking. And, you know, so I think that will be a shock for some people who sit down to watch it. They're going to be like, oh, no. But I watched it with the subtitles on, to be honest. And I found that very helpful because I knew they were going to be rapping fast. And I kind of wanted to make sure I could follow the story because everyone had told me how dense it was. And I'm glad I watched it with the subtitles on. But I'm, you know, I'm, I don't plan on doing that in the future. But, you know, it's a, it's a welcome option for people who, if they're concerned about someone's rapping too fast and they can't follow along. It's, it, stuff like that's pretty helpful. Oh, I, I encourage people to do it. I think um, I, I truly think it's worthwhile to, to watch this show twice, you know, however you could see it. Now that this option is available and I've seen it, I can say as someone who has seen the stage performance, this is a totally valid option that, I mean, you're never, you can never fully recreate a live experience, no matter what it is you're, you're doing live versus uh, a recorded element of that, you know, anything that is supposed to be live is probably going to be best served live. But this is as close as I can, as I could have ever imagined um, this show translating as close as I could ever imagine it recreating the live experience. So I think this is a totally valid way to see the show for the first time. And you're really going to get, for the most part, what the experience is like. And that said, I think it's a show that it demands two viewings because well, it is such a, a dense story and there's so much happening that um, you mentioned uh, having subtitles as an option. I think better than an option. I think everyone should eventually, if you can watch it twice, if you're interested to watch it twice, I would highly recommend watching it once with and once without subtitles for sure. Because when I saw it live for the first time, I obviously don't have the benefit of subtitles there. And yeah, there there's a ton that you miss because... So much is happening. So much is being said. The The wordplay is so creative. And there are so many fun little, um, 
like little bits of homage that's happening and wordplay and double entendres that are going on that you're just not going to pick up on the first time. And not only that, you know, the story is swimming in your head too. So you're naturally, naturally your mind may be elsewhere in a certain moment and you miss a line or like there's a laugh line that you miss what something was said. So yeah, uh, subtitles are totally valid. Yeah. And so I did want to talk about, you know, we've mentioned multiple times that the, that these things are usually not made available. And there's a, the reason for that generally is that, you know, I, people like us, or especially, you know, people in the middle of the country who are, don't even get the national shows, like at least in Ohio, I lived near Columbus and Cincinnati and there were major cities that still got major shows uh, on a regular basis. Whereas, you know, there are certain parts of this country that don't have access. And like you were saying, you know, some people were looking at the Hamilton phenomenon, like that's great. Maybe in 20 years, I'll actually catch that thing. And it, the reason that something like this is not usually made available is because those, those shows are often driven by your desire to see them long term. And their belief is that, you know, if they release this version, it becomes the definitive version. They're scared that it's going to drive away ticket sales to right. seeing it, to seeing it live. So I think, and also I, from other things that I've been reading this past weekend, there's the way it works out in contracts, like the actors, there's no negotiations for how actors would get residuals or anything like that, or the creators that's, that stuff is not really properly set up. So they don't want to screw the creators over or the people who worked on these shows either. And yeah, so something like a dear Evan Hansen or something like that from the last few years that has really ex not exploded to the level of Hamilton, but been a big show. Millions of people I'm sure would love to watch the original Broadway version of that or many other shows. And, but yeah, they're scared that long-term people aren't going to go to see them. So I'm very curious if this, how this affects Hamilton ticket sales. Cause like you said, like even Lynn Manuel Miranda dropping out, dropped ticket sales 80%, which I think is kind of hilarious because we can talk about this maybe later. One of my biggest criticisms of the show was Lynn Manuel Miranda's performance, but we can, yeah. So yeah, we'll talk about that later, but like, I'm just curious what you think about, you know, making these things well, more available generally, or if that's, you know, if you think something like this leads to more of this in the future, or if this is just a one-off for this phenomenal phenomenon thing i'm curious well as as glad as i was that they decided to uh push the release date or pull the release date forward because this was supposed to be a fall 2021 theatrical release and i would have been so fascinated to see how much money that would have made in theaters um i have a feeling it would have done really really well i think it would have made over 100 million dollars in theaters i, I agree yeah in, in america alone for sure um but they obviously pushed it up uh, for because of the coronavirus and people suffering and struggling at home and just who knows what the future theaters are going to look like. You know, obviously this year it's pretty much a wash. Who knows how how much of next year it affects too? And I think they just decided like, oh, people need something like this. Let's let's throw it out there. Um, and I think when it comes to something like Hamilton, they're confident at this point. I think they've seen the results and know. You know, we have we have something like a Cats or a Phantom of the Opera that's going to just be playing and touring the world on and off for decades. I think they know they have a lifelong theatrical hit on their hands um, because while the ticket sales did drop um, in those those first few uh, weeks or whatever when Lynn left, they did stay low and it was still selling out left and right over and over and still up until. Uh, Broadway, yeah, and, it, and I know it opened. Shut in everything down. Every, I mean, every touring show. I mean, it, it came to L.A. 
last year, and it sold out instantly. I mean, you could not find a ticket to that. Yeah, and I know it went to Chicago and sold out there. There were some shows. There's even a show. I don't know how. It's weird. I don't know about the national tour, but like I know people who were seeing it in Cincinnati. Like I was like, oh, that's surprising that it was already there, but I didn't. If they if they were the, if it was available to get tickets, it sold out right away, and I would have never had a chance to get them anyway. Yeah, uh, I was very much looking. For, I ended up not seeing it in L.A. because I had seen it twice, and honestly, it was just too expensive because it sold out so fast, and there was so much demand. So I think they just know it's one of those shows that everyone in the world would like to see. I think they they clearly know that by now, and many of the people, so many people, fall in love with it and want to see it again and again. I think it's just one of those shows that has that appeal because it's so dense, because it's so uh, unique. And I think it, it really rewards repeat viewings and listening. So I think that gave them the confidence to release this and know that long-term it's really not going to affect uh, the staying power of the show. You know, just like how you see stuff like, um, like Les Mis puts out the, they do like a big, Hollywood musical version or they they release the 25th anniversary uh London stage show which you know is just a bunch of all the characters with the mic standing off the stage it's not really the show itself but they're comfortable releasing those things now because they know like okay Lame Miz is one of the the big boys of Broadway musicals like, yeah they've can, they've milked that fucking cow yeah like and we know we can continue touring it they just brought it to uh, LA for the first time in forever last summer. And I went to go see it twice um, of course because they know, they know that show has staying power. Um, yeah. I think Hamilton is one of those shows, something like dear Evan Hansen. Hopefully it does. Dear Evan Hansen is brilliant. And I would love to see uh, a filmed version of that as well. But I don't know if they have the confidence that something like that will linger like Hamilton does. But you got to think though, like filming that can't cost that much versus what's what it would probably drive in sales. You know, yeah. for, for ticket uh, sales. Maybe, and who knows? Maybe now they realize. I mean, if they if they if they have filmed shows like Dear Evan Hansen, if they filmed the original cast and done a show like they did with Hamilton, if they had the foresight to do that, now's the time to release it because Broadway is obviously turning in uh, zero dollars a day. So, um, you know, if any if any any musicals are sitting on, uh, um cast recordings that they filmed please start releasing them and make some money take our money we would love to watch them all right so i want to dive into what what i kind of just mentioned which is mr miranda's performance which obviously is very you know he's the star of the show he i don't i certainly not trying to take anything away from him but it seemed as someone who's seen plenty of musical theater over my time i was like oh there's clearly many better singers or people who can hit these notes much or have breath control seemingly in a way that he doesn't seem to have. It seemed so often that he was out of breath or barely able to catch his breath um, to the point that it, it seemed to affect the notes he was hitting. At least for me, um, it was occasionally distracting, but you know, not to the point that I didn't like his performance. It was one of those things where you're almost, I don't know, it's almost like a not to sorry this is the first thing that's coming to mind but i'm thinking like woody allen where you're like yeah there's better actors than woody allen but he's kind of got this unique personality that's kind of driving this whole thing anyway and that's what you latch onto. so i do think miranda has kind of a natural charisma he obviously has skill as a performer uh but i also walked away believing i was like i can have to believe that almost everyone that followed him is a naturally better singer who could maybe do better on some of these songs yeah so i looked up um 
Javier Munoz is the name of Lynn's understudy who he was uh he took over at on in the heights and also was Hamilton. Yeah. I heard he was sexy Hamilton. Uh he <laughs> maybe, I don't know, but he's the guy I saw. So he took over uh in the summer of twenty sixteen, which is when I saw it for the first time. And yeah, man, I he he's better <laughs> at Hamilton. I think you know, obviously, Lin Manuel's the genius behind this, and he deserves all the credit. And if that means he wants to play Hamilton, God bless, man. It's your it's your thing. Um, no one's going to stop you, nor should they. But um, if he had not written that and had auditioned <laughs> against Javier Munoz, I don't think Lin would have gotten the role. That's just my opinion. Um, yeah, Munoz has a better voice. I think he's uh, just naturally more talented on stage. But Lin is a what can you say about Lin-Manuel Miranda, man? He's a legitimate genius. And uh, those people don't come around too often, so you got to let them do what they're going to do. I mean, if it was a question of I have to be Hamilton or we're not going to put this on, I'm very, very glad he decided to play Hamilton, you know? Yeah. So, and I guess kind of, I guess while we're talking about the cast, we haven't really talked about the race and the, you know, the the character or the race swapping that kind of happens with real historical figures and obviously there's been so many think pieces about that but i you know just for me watching it for the first time i didn't know what the power of it would be necessarily or how it would work within the play or how i would perceive things but what it did especially in this current political moment we're in while i was watching it was just even watching these characters say words like we demand our freedom like that would mean one thing hearing a white actor say that but having a, a black actor say it somehow brings a whole new meaning to it and when you hear yeah. words like em- immigrant it has a whole new meaning to it and it kind of just underlines certain things and in a way it does invite these people the you know minorities other immigrants everyone else who was not included in the original experience of the forefathers and the the building of the constitution and all that stuff it kind of brings them into this american experience and in a way that is fantastical and that's some of the other things i want to talk to you talk to you about in terms of the historical accuracy and some of that other stuff that i i thought was interesting but yeah i thought it was so fascinating watching it's it's an 800 page book that shell my my wife listened to she did the audio book of and so she actually knew quite a lot about alexander hamilton before we sat down to watch the show and, you know, just it's it, he's not the most obvious choice for a ground, you know, appealing to teenagers fucking rocking their heads in the middle of the show. So when you talk about the genius of him, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right to talk about the way he is subverting expectations by placing minority characters in these major roles like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and giving them to minorities and just kind of letting it speak for itself, not overplaying his hand too much on those elements, just kind of writing it straight and letting the just letting the visual speak for itself in a way that I really admired. And that stuff was great. And we've kind of just taken for granted in this conversation, how fucking good the music is. The music's incredible. And I can't really like, there's nothing I can say about that. I was watching it and I was like, there's some fucking bops in this shit. Like I, I undeniable, like I, I have listened to the soundtrack a few times, but yeah, the cast is incredible. The, the you know, David Diggs, um, everyone, you, like you, everyone is incredible and everyone except Miranda, he's the weak link. Um, but yeah, that, well, I, I also want to say, I don't think he's bad. He's just, it's noticeable when you're going up against Leslie Odom 
And yeah, that's, like, it, Leslie right, right. Odom has his his single, Wait For It, which another thing I want to talk about the music. For those who haven't listened yet or maybe turn like, if you're not a hip-hop fan and you're like, oh, I don't want to see that rap musical, there's so much more, which Phil has touched on. There's so much more than just, it's not three hours of hip-hop songs. Like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Leslie Odom Jr. who plays, who's the original Aaron Burr, his solo song towards the end of the first act, which is called Wait For It, is not a rap song. And it is one of the best songs, in my opinion, that I personally have ever seen in a Broadway musical. Theodosia writes me a letter every day. I'm keeping the bed warm while her husband is away. He's on the British side in Georgia. He's trying to keep the colonies in line. Well, he can keep all of Georgia, Theodosia, she's mine. Love doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes and we keep loving anyway. We laugh and we cry and we break and we make our mistakes. And if there's a reason I'm by her side and so many have tried, then I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. My grandfather was a fire. I think it's so beautiful and powerful. I've listened to it a thousand times. There's so much emotion packed in that song. And then you have stuff like uh, two songs back-to-back from the Skylar sisters with uh, um, the the two Skylar sisters who are Helpless kind of, and satisfied. Yeah, helpless and satisfied. They're both kind of, you realize they're both in love with Alexander, but only one of them marries alexander and there's uh this this very sweet romantic song called helpless which is just gorgeous and then there's a sequence that takes place at the wedding where the maid of honor the older sister elizabeth schuyler has a song called satisfied which really plays with uh time and memory and like second chances and what ifs but it plays with the timing of the show and it's a very it's very creative the way it's orchestrated and choreographed and the way the actual song structure works in terms of the timing of the story. So yeah. there's so much more creativity going on than just like, oh, it's the hip hop musical. Yeah, some of that stuff, those touches, um, I will say, I mean, I know that there's denser songs, but when I say bop, I'm talking about um, Helpless. That song, that might be my favorite song on this, on the so, whole soundtrack. It's so good, man. It's so good. <laughs> like, I, like, I, like, I know I'm, like, there's, you know, more sophisticated songs. And that's pro- one of the simpler, just like romantic kind of idealistic things are going good songs. But that was one of the moments when I was watching it that I was like, this is fucking great. But the um, ly- I mean, the lyrics to that are are very equally, smart. Yeah. yeah, they're they're equally smart and rewarding. He just he, he has Lin Manuel Miranda just has a command of uh, wordplay addiction that few people ever have. You know, and it, even if you go to like, um, there there are so many 
influences in this show. So many. And I think that's what the the re-listenings and now hopefully re-watchings that people are going to do of this show, I think that's where you're going to find a lot of the rewarding uh, reactions you're going to get to just replaying the music over and over because it's not just all of the lines that he straight straight up lifts like in, uh, in his big single song, My Shot, when he has that line like, I'm only 19, but my mind is older. That's a straight lift from Mob Deep, like one the Mob Deep's uh, classic song Shook Ones. Yeah, and at some point he goes like, and you don't know, and or and if you don't know, now you know. Like right. there's all kinds of random hip hop things that yeah, if you there know, there, are, yeah. there are multiple Biggie references, including that one. And not only is that one of the most overt uh, lifts from a rap song, but that is in a song called Cabinet Battle, which is literally staged like a rap battle where George Washington is basically the MC of a rap battle. I mean, if it reminds you of the end of 8 Mile, it should, you know? But instead of instead of Eminem rapping, it's fucking Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so, there's such a sense of playfulness on top of the denseness of this, you know? And maybe, um, yeah, maybe a, a song called Cabinet Battle seems goofy as fuck and you're like oh it's like a rap battle but but it's not there's so much going on and the the wordplay and the interplay and actually how it advances the plot it all works it all just works yeah and you're you're talking about wordplay it reminds me of you know and you you mentioned the song wait for it like he's very smart about these motifs that he returns to over and over again in terms of defining these characters wait for it becomes a defining song for aaron burr and i think What's interesting, especially because Hamilton is defined by this song, My Shot, which you mentioned already as well. And it's that the theme of that is I'm not going to waste my shot. And he is a character who is hungry and doesn't really want to uh, suffer fools and just speaks his mind and kind of can't help himself. Whereas you have someone like Burr who's saying, wait for it. And he's a character who kind of wants to sit in the background and let things happen and observe which way the, sh- the tide's rolling, you know, and kind of go that way. And even simple word plays like that, that are both catchy and, you know, easy catchable or sorry, catchy lines that are spread throughout the show, but also really underline who they are as characters. And that that's the kind of wordplay that I really loved. And yeah, like you said, it's incredibly dense uh, with different genres. It's not just rap battles the whole time, which I think maybe some people might think it is. But yeah, like I said, if, if that's a problem for you, turn the subtitles on. It, re- it really helped me out a lot. And yeah, the, the, the songs are incredible. Um, and there's a wide variety of songs. So I think that's another reason the this, this show has become such a hit is because there there's enough to attract the new generation and the old generation. And I think... Lin-Manuel Miranda specifically you're talking about his genius and you know I, I think there's a reason Disney has picked him up and he's kind of become a Disney man and I think that's because his instincts are generally to appeal to a mass audience and he's not someone who I think is trying to sub he is trying to subvert genres and um, subvert expectations but I'm not sure that he's angry or mean in any way you know he's i think he wants i i think i saw a quote from him a while ago where like he wants every 13 and every 13 year old in the world to be excited by this show that's his goal and i think to that end the show is brilliant and but i do think that there's some like you know some complex ideas the show kind of brushes past and i you know the the historian and especially in this moment where we're kind of talking about the the forefathers and slavery and everything that was 
that was on my mind kind of watching it a lot. And I had some questions regarding that that I think might be interesting in comparison to how it plays in the Obama era versus the Trump era. And I don't know if, I don't know if you had any impression of that since you saw it during both. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think I was, um, I was more aware of that this week versus, um, seeing it for the first time I saw it was at the tail end of Obama's, um, presidency and then obviously when i saw it the second time with my sister that was uh trump's first year in office i believe but now you know we're seeing um confederate statues taking down left and right which i'm sure lynn manuel has no problem with but then we're also seeing uh like george washington statues being uh defiled and removed in certain places by by protesters and i was i was definitely thinking like huh i wonder what lynn thinks about that about, I mean, like a statue of George Washington uh, being defaced. Yeah, I know? mean, one of my thoughts kind of walking away from it was both that this was an interesting subversion of American history, but that it also still kind of played to the romanticization of the forefathers and kind of them as great men. And, you know, maybe it's just hard to betray the men who created America as otherwise, you know, and unless you're willing, like I said, I don't think Miranda's interested in kind of going into them as like slave owners or anything. I don't think that's necessarily part of his ambition. So I don't, I don't want to fault the show for not covering that stuff necessarily. Cause well, I think, he's, think he definitely, he definitely um, does not let Thomas Jefferson uh, remain unscathed because there is one biting line that basically closes down uh the first major fight between Jefferson and Hamilton where, um, you know, the first cabinet battle when they're complaining over Hamilton as the head of Washington's treasury department wants to reallocate funds to the federal government. And Thomas Jefferson as a Southerner is very much about states rights and Hamilton basically hits him with it. Yeah. We know why you down in Virginia have all this money. Like we know who's, who's doing all the planning for you. Right. Um, basically implying like you're a slave state. That's why you're able to pay all your taxes. That's why you're not the trouble that New York is in and we need to band together. So there, there are moments like this, but in terms of a character like George Washington, George Washington comes off as the, the father of America, the most like gentle, noble hero this country has ever seen. Um, he is never rebuked once. And, uh, while while that is for sure historically uh, letting him off the hook, I think it's it's fair to say that as a criticism. But at the end of the day, I think you know there are plenty of uh, materials that go into Washington's hypocrisy, um, hypo- uh, Washington's history with being a slave owner, with his family being a slave owner, you know, Washington was one of those guys who wanted to liberate his slaves after his death, but he also did have slaves during his life. Um, At the end of the day, I think, you know, a project like this, you have to, you have to pick a lane, like what is your goal here? And you just have to ride that out because no one's going to have 15 hours to tell their story and cover every angle, you know? Yeah. And I think Lin-Manuel's purpose was, you know, we hear so much about the founding fathers. Why does Alexander Hamilton get the short shaft? Like he did so much for this country. I think that was his goal going in. And then I think if the, if that was his goal, he succeeded because Hamilton is very much now a name we we kind of hear on the level of all those other people, on the level of like a, a Washington or a Jefferson. And I think 
almost all of that is in it is because of this musical, which is an amazing accomplishment. Well, that was actually one of my biggest criticisms is I, I, I don't know if I think Alexander Hamilton deserves that kind of, I mean, don't get me wrong. He created the banking system and the American treasury, but you know, you can go read plenty of articles and this was conversations I had with shell afterwards. Cause like I said, she read that book that it's based on, but the, the show is not historically accurate almost in any way. It's almost complete fantasy, um, which I'm fine with. I'm not really saying that as a criticism, but like the actual facts of what happened and you know, it's very loose and you know, Hamilton himself was almost the definition of the one percenter at the time. And he was someone who, you know, triumph or trumpeted the banks and the power of the banks over the individuals and the people. And, you know, he's a complicated person. And while, you know, I'm not saying that the, he's not an important part of American history or not worth covering in this way, or Miranda should be ashamed. But I think it's interesting that he chose that person to kind of turn into a, a kind of immigrant hero, which he certainly, I don't think he was, um, at least based on what I've understood in, in conversations and reading over the weekend. I'm not going to pretend to be some expert, but I do think it's interesting that while I think the show is incredibly valuable in terms of teaching lessons about American history and subverting American history, like I said, by the way it's cast and the way the music is and everything, I do think it's interesting just generally in relation to true history that the show is, you know, not accurate about Alexander Hamilton much. So I don't know. I'd that's stuff that didn't really bother me at the time. It doesn't really bother me now. I just think it's kind of worth talking about. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think what you're saying there is not totally fair because you're you're calling Hamilton a one percenter, which I guess is true after he gets married. But he he wasn't like a wealthy little kid. That but he fought. But I'm saying he 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 spent his life fighting for the richest and the and, and empowering the banks and empowering the wealthiest people and empowering the 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 wealth of the country as opposed to the individuals and social reforms such as it was at the time. I don't think that was his interest, which I'm once again, I'm really not but trying they to don't, say the, the, but the musical doesn't really suggest otherwise. No, he's, but he's very pro central banking in the musical, but he, but I'm still saying like, he's kind of lionized as a hero when I think, you know, history just shows that, like you said, the, the, the relationship with slavery and the relationship with other people and his relationship to, the I don't think he was the hero, the people's hero, you know, at the time. I, I think that's a very fantastical thing made up for this show. Um, but you See, know, I like didn't, I didn't get the impression the show was trying to say he was the people's hero. I don't get that. Well, like you said, like now we're talking about Alexander Hamilton in the same way we talk about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, like I don't know if he's as good a guy as those. Or no, he, I didn't. I didn't say Abraham Lincoln. I said like Thomas Jefferson. I'm I'm talking specifically of the founding fathers. I don't think. I don't think the point was Hamilton is this this people's hero, and I don't know where you got that message from the show. I think the point was what whatever you think about the founding fathers, you know, I think it's important to know their stories and their history because they made the country, right? And I think his point was why do we hear so much about certain founding fathers like Washington and like Jefferson and we don't hear about Alexander Hamilton? I think that was the point of making the musical. Sure. And there's other ones too. Like, I mean, not that they're comparable in style, but you know, you have like your John Adams, you know, on HBO, which is kind of like, Hey, like there's this whole other person that we never talk about that, you know, there's more than George Who's Washington. basically relegated to a, to a joke in this. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the only other, 
mild criticism I wanted to throw at it that I was curious what you thought about it um, was, like I said earlier, I think the, the songs that they're given are some of my favorites of the show, but I was also a little thrown. I, I wish the show had done a little bit more to make the women to give them something to do other than to fawn over Hamilton. That's just, you know, I don't, I understand why it's not their story or there, you know, there's only so much time in a three hour show and all that. And I do think there's interesting th- things done, especially towards the end, but a large part of what the women do in the show is just talk about how great Alexander is and, you know, like fight over, no, they don't fight over him, but multiple, there's multiple people pining over him throughout the show. And, yeah, that was just one of those things like, ah, you know, in this day and age, I kind of wish there would have been something more. But like I said, minor criticism, that's about all That's about all I had criticism-wise for the show. But otherwise, I, I agree, it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, I the, the only thing is I don't really know what you could give them that would be... Yeah, I, like I said, I understand like the, the, the design of the show is not that. So yeah, because for me, honestly, I think, I think the slowest part of the show is when... We find out about Hamilton's affair and the black. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's when the show really slows down. So, and I can only imagine that that is probably if we were to be given more of their lives, it would have been probably more to do with that and like maybe focusing on the Skyler sisters' life in that fallout and maybe while they're reeling from their marriage and the death of their son, and you know maybe. Uh, Elizabeth coming back to America to like, you know, kind of take over and kind of set things right again, because I know she was very much responsible for when their marriage was on the rocks. You know, it it went to the older sister who, you know, obviously it seemed had a special relationship with Alexander. I don't know if she was in love with him, but he definitely used he was historically accurate in the sense that they had this long term pen pal relationship and they seemed very close you know, she was very responsible for kind of keeping their marriage together, I think. So I guess they could have focused on that. But considering that stuff was the least interesting, I don't know if I would have wanted it more other than just like, a, you know, maybe a kind of generic like, oh, involve your women more in your story. But I just don't know. That sounds great. And what they're given, they they do a bang up job of like, like you said, I think two of the absolute highlights of the show are helpless and satisfied for me. And I I will give it credit. One thing I do like is uh, the very end of the musical focus. Yeah. The the ending is especially what I really liked actually. And maybe that's what I wanted more of. I was like, Oh, I like the way this, the way they're kind of using this ending to re to help you view this history as kind of like history is who's telling the history. History is what we want it to be. You know, all this, all the stuff that the show kind of wraps up with, I, I was very appreciative of and, that's I, I maybe I just wanted more of that, but like I said, that's a it's a nitpick. I mean, and it also gives well. What I was going to say is it gives credit to his his wife there, you know, setting up the orphanage in his name and making sure that his writings are published and stuff. But like you were just saying, you know, history is it's is based on who tells the story. That again goes back to what I'm saying is I think was Land Manuel Miranda's ultimate uh, purpose in telling the story is like why. Why isn't Alexander Hamilton's story more widely known? You know, for better, for worse, whatever inaccuracies you may find, um, which, again, I don't really agree with what you were saying about that. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it's a story worth telling for better or worse. And while maybe there, maybe he takes some historical stretches, I don't think he, he just perfectly lionizes the guy either. Um, like, I... 
I didn't know a ton about Alexander Hamilton, but I did know, I obviously knew about the Aaron Burr duel. I've, I've been to the spot where he died uh, before, and I knew that he was buddies with Washington, and I knew that he cheated on his wife. That was actually one thing I did know. And I remember going into that musical thinking, is he going to gloss over that? And when he didn't, I was very pleasantly surprised that he didn't. But then it turned out to be the worst part of the show. And I was like, yeah, maybe you should have glossed over that. But I don't know. But um, yeah, it's a it's a great musical. Yeah. Um, the song It's Quiet Uptown is actually, I thought, one of the emotional highlights of the show. Um, yes, that's true. De- dealing with a lot of that stuff. So, um, But that's also dealing with the death of his son and- yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but just, yeah, like you said, the fallout of kind of the mistakes he's made in his life and him trying to kind of quiet down. So, all right, let's let's wrap this up. Let's talk about favorite songs. Do you have favorite songs or was there a, something that really popped in this version to you that you hadn't thought about in a while and anything? Yeah, well, um, you know, even though I, I preferred Javier Munoz's Hamilton, I, I will say um, as someone who has listened to the cast recording, uh, a million times, uh, which obviously has Lynn Manuel Miranda in that cast recording. Whatever flaws you may have seen in this performance, I would still highly recommend you listen to the uh, the Broadway cast recording because I think he does a much better job there. Um, yeah, for what for whatever reason, he's probably just given a lot more uh, a lot more time to to sing the songs, you know, and he's obviously given more takes as opposed to a one-off live show or two, two versions of a live show. Um, I have so many favorite songs. They've changed over time. Um, you know, I've, I've literally listened to this performance, uh, certain songs I've listened to hundreds of times. This has been one of my favorite pieces of music of the past five years. I think it's one of the all-time great musicals. Um, if I had to pick a couple of favorites... Um, definitely satisfied, definitely wait for it. I love the, uh, there's a little combo section early on in the second act that, um, it's a three part combo. It's cabinet battle number two, which leads to Washington on your side, which is all the Southern politicians bitching about, uh, Hamilton, just being George Washington's good little boy. And like, we can never defeat this guy as long as, you know, Washington favors him, which then leads to them deciding to blackmail Hamilton. And it cuts into Washington announcing his retirement. And that song is called one last time, which is a duet with George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, which is, uh, I mean, low key, one of the most important moments of the show and of American history, right? Like that's, that's George Washington's decision to step down after two terms as president. And if he doesn't do that, who knows what happens with our democracy and the constitutional Republic? Like who knows what happens with the, the seat of the president, you know, George Washington could have easily decided he was so popular. He could have easily decided to try to make that a lifelong appointment. And if he had been reelected over and over and over again, who knows if they try to change the rules to like, oh, maybe we need to make a one term as president longer than four years. And um, I just think that is something for whatever faults you want to find with Washington, which there are plenty to find. He was a hero, but he was also a slave owner and people are complicated. But that decision alone in terms of saving the country, I mean, can you imagine if Trump just got elected to like a 12 year term? Holy shit, man. 
Yeah, uh, um, I just saw actually in Russia. I don't know if you saw the latest election results, but apparently it would mean that the, the Russia just voted that would in a on something that would allow Vladimir Putin Putin to be president for. I think six more terms, like till 2060 or something like that. Yeah, something a, ridiculous. a lifetime appointment. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, we we could have turned into a a, a place like Russia, Jesus Christ, um, which we are under our leadership anyway. But yeah, I would say that that little combo is my probably my favorite uh, three part medley that I return to a lot. That isn't like one of the huge huge uh, songs that little three three part of cabinet battle two washington on your side and one last time uh i love um it's quiet uptown with the election of 1800 when uh you know they have the chorus swelling of like dear mr hamilton yeah uh, when he when he endorses jefferson yeah that that part is really great um and then uh lastly i would say uh i mean if you're going to be a great Broadway show, your act one closer has to be really strong. And this act one closer, Yorktown, the world turned upside down is really strong. It's really good. I like that one a lot too. Or I'm sorry, not York, not Yorktown, uh, nonstop. Yorktown is the, the battle song, which is also great, but nonstop is the, the act one closer, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we kind of mentioned earlier the the opening act. I was especially like tracks one through uh, twelve or eleven or twelve on the um, on the soundtrack. You know that kind of first act stuff with introducing everybody. That whole stretch, I was really like, oh wow! Like these songs are a wide variety of verse and style and um, so good. Helpless and satisfied both are romantic and kind of change the the tune but also like you said the story reverses and plays with time during satisfied and you kind of see the same events shown again through a sister the different sister's perspective and at that point in the show i was like man okay i see it you know like i'm not i'm not a fool i know i know good when i see it and yeah that that stretch was really great and kind of everything else you mentioned i'm a big fan of i really like the room where it happens um did you miss the motherfucker or the motherfucking on washington on your side how big of a letdown was that when you heard it censored well, I noticed when they um, when I started the show and it said PG thirteen, and I was like, oh, maybe it's one of those things like Titanic where they decide the nudity was for purpose and they're just going to let it slide. But no, uh, it's kind of lame because it's not like they it's not like a word that they just sneak into the verse. Yeah, like it's it's such a loud moment. Um, it's it's, it's yeah it's it stood out it's just because disney plus wants all of their content on the app at all times to be family friendly and they're they're just trying to make it you know saleable for everyone and i guess you know if that's the sacrifice for having it sure but exactly but at the yeah. end of the day man, as we know and as life has shown us Kids are going to say fuck, man. Yeah. Yeah. That that doesn't work. That's just stupid. But whatever. We still have the show. It it didn't ruin the show for me. No. All right. Is there anything else you want to throw out while we're talking about it? Um, No. I just will say, um, you know, people can have, uh, you know, not everybody has to like the show. Of course, Uh, we're all entitled to our opinions. I, I know people who walked away from it not liking it, and that's fine. Personally, I think. You know, like you were saying, there's always the the hype machine can wear a project down, especially if too much time goes by and you sit down with your 
your arms crossed like okay is this going to be the best movie of all time like everyone says Citizen Kane is and I think the point is to try to remember something like Citizen Kane something like Hamilton they have these reputations for a reason it doesn't mean it has to be your new favorite thing but what it means is this is an important piece of pop culture that has shown up it would be great if you give it a shot because it is important it is groundbreaking for several reasons in my opinion i think this is one of the i think this is one of the great pieces of art that uh, america has produced in a very long time like i would put it up there with with any great work that i have seen personally and um yeah i i give it the the highest the highest honors i can personally bestow upon it i don't know man like it, it whatever whatever issues and faults i have with it far it is far outweighed by all of the positives i find from it the creativity at play the fact that someone was able to to just bring something like this out of nothing it just kind of it blows my mind and um i'm super glad it exists i'm super glad it's out there uh this is a stone cold masterpiece Really quick, are you going to count it towards your best films of the year? How are you thinking of it in, in terms no. of that way? No. No. Me, me neither, but then somebody else posed like, well, what's the difference between this and like Stop Making Sense? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't have a good answer, but I don't know. I don't know either, but I'm just not. Yeah, me neither. Any, yeah, like when we next week we're going to talk about our best films of the year so far. And while this is certainly one of the best releases of the year, I don't, th- I don't think I'm going to count it as a film. No, I mean, although maybe I should because you've seen way more than me. I need to pad my stats, but no, yeah. I won't. I mean, even, and like we were even saying, there are cinematic choices being made in the direction. Um, the guy who directed it directed the original show and is a uh, uh, Fosse Verdon director um, who, that, that show. He, so he has a good musical background, and there's a lot of smart decisions made with the camera and editing, but I don't know. Maybe later I'll think of it as a film. I'm, I'm usually not the guy who's... Like, I don't think of the Twin Peaks season three as a movie either. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I don't either because it's not. Yeah, you're right. All right. (laughs) So moving on to our next topic, Um, you know, we're talking on July 5th right now. It's technically July 6th because it's after midnight. But we started this conversation on July 5th. And basically, Tom and I want to talk about some some 4th of July movies, the the Mount Rushmore, if you will, of them. And so we wanted to talk about some of our favorite movies about the holiday, about America, about what we want to watch on this holiday. I guess first thing, Tom, tell me what your criteria was. What was your kind of mindset making your list? How, we kind of didn't talk too much in detail about it, so I'm curious about your, your mentality while you're collecting titles. Yeah, well, I thought of this... Uh, I thought of making a little fun Mount Rushmore thing because I was going to see Jaws this week. And to me, Jaws is the quintessential July 4th movie. It's when I think of July 4th movies, the first movie I think of is always Jaws. And as we decided to discuss and watch Hamilton, you know, my like I said when they announced a few months ago, uh, my initial reaction was like, oh, cool, they're bumping it up by over a year to give us something to watch during the coronavirus. And it wasn't until... A little time had passed that I realized, like, oh, this it was an intentional move to put it out on July 4th weekend, right? The story of Alexander Hamilton and the yeah, nation course, fighting course, for yeah. its independence. It was obviously a, a, a concerted move by them. So all of those two things combined have me thinking of 
what do we watch on July 4th? Especially, I feel like, you know, I feel like every every um, critically thinking American at some point has a reckoning with Columbus Day as a holiday. And yeah, what for that me, it means. was that episode of The Sopranos. Yeah, like what that means and what, what are we actually celebrating when we celebrate that. And... Uh, once you go through that reckoning, I think your attention, at least if you're me, I'm obviously general, generalizing my own uh, thought processes here. But then I, I turn to July 4th, and the older I get, the more I think about, like, well, what does it mean to celebrate, like, our nation's independence? How much should we actually be celebrating? You know, you and I have talked about this a lot over the past month, since, especially since the killing of George Floyd what it means to be a white man in America. Like what does our whiteness and our privilege mean as, as a white guy celebrating July 4th, am I celebrating the oppression of other people? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and all of that plays into what I think of as a July 4th movie, because a lot of it, if, you know, if you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have said like, Oh, like jaws, obviously, cause it takes place on july 4th and then like independence day and then like maybe mel gibson's the patriot because it's about that time you know like i would just try to think of like what are the most patriotic movies and that's not what i think anymore when i think of july 4th um and so that's why i feel like my 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 own personal mount rushmore of uh july 4th movies today is different than it would be 10 or 15 years ago and that's kind of what i why i wanted to talk about because i wanted to know in terms of my criteria, it, it I'm not keeping it restricted to like it has to take place on July 4th or it has to be about America's independence. Just whatever whatever that holiday means to you, whether it's just like, oh, it makes me think of summer. So here's a summer movie or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. But um, to me, it's a it's a holiday that I, I think about a lot and my views on it are changing with each year. Um, and so I want to see that reflected in the movies I chose. All right. Um, what so about you? What, yeah, I mean, for me, I had a criteria of pr- I hoped that it had seen uh, at least one scene that took place on the 4th of July. So I wanted there to be fireworks. I wanted there to be uh, American flags everywhere. I wanted the movie to be about America and in some way and, and trying to reflect that and the ver- the various angles you can take on that concept whatever america means to you it's kind of been approached from different genres in different ways and you know with different levels of severity and yeah so that's kind of how i approach my list was just thinking about what movies when i think about like what movies kind of sum up america to me in a way and also kind of when i think about the fourth of july what 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 instantly springs to my mind like you said we we talked about jaws jaws is kind of the definitive fourth of july movie so i was like let's not include jaws because i think everyone knows that that's the that's the number one that's the big daddy and so yeah with that said i, I guess think I, we could we could both say right now right like jaws would have been number one on both of our lists yeah like jaws is the number one yeah like of course yeah, so this is this is the jaws memorial our jaws memorial fourth of july movie about rushmore yeah and so i one thing i did differently you said mount rushmore so you did four you did four yeah. movies? Okay, I did I did a top 5. I just did a top 5 4th of July movies. So, I, okay. I can I can I'll I'll throw out my top 5. I'll, I'll throw out my number 5 just really quickly. Um, but you know, I won't yeah, yeah, you might even mention it yourself. But anyway, let's dive, let's dive into our list. I'm curious where you start. Let's get let's let's get this thing rolling. Tell me what your first pick is. 
Well, give me your five first, so we could be even with four titles each after that. Well, okay. Like, well, I'm a, what's your what's your number five? My number five is the only reason I, I'm a little hesitant to mention it is it's one of the primary titles that will pop up when you're searching Fourth of July movies or Independence Day movies or whatever it is, movies about America. Um, it's it's a personal favorite and it's fantastic and it holds a lot of personal memories for me. It is the Sandlot. And okay, that that's the only standard choice that is on my Mount Rushmore. Yeah, that's <laughs> that the only. That would have been my first my first pick, like my number four pick. I guess. Yeah, that was the only. That's why I had it at number five. It's kind of the only standard choice, except for one other possible one, depending on how you look at it. But yeah, this is the one that has a Fourth of July scene. It takes yeah. place in the summer, and I even I didn't rewatch the whole movie, but I rewatched the Fourth of July sequence because it's one of the the kind of hearts of the movie and for it some is. reason it's the standout sequence of the whole movie like yeah. the most uh emotional sequence in the whole movie yeah and for anyone who hasn't seen it in a long time or hasn't seen it for some fucking reason it's um you know kids are playing baseball and during the fourth of july they play a night game and the the sequence is just like three minutes with ray charles singing america the beautiful and fireworks are going off while the guys play baseball under the light of the fireworks and kind of eventually get distracted by the lights going off and they stop playing ball while the the big you know baseball guy around them uh start keeps running and keeps playing but the rest of them are all hypnotized by the lights but just rewatching it there's this obviously very norman rockwell-esque kind of 50s um americana to it white picket fences leave it to beaver that kind of thing is all throughout the all throughout the visuals and also just seeing like kids scoop up hot dogs and put them on, you know, in bun, shitty white bread buns on paper plates and dumping ketchup and shit. Like those types of visuals. I'm like, yeah, that's the 4th of July. Like paper plates with fucking handfuls of Ruffles potato chips and whatever else and hot dogs or some shit. And yeah, that it just has a sequence that when you brought it up, it's one of the defining like 4th of July sequences on film. There was only one night game a year. On the 4th of July, the whole sky would brighten up with fireworks, giving us just enough light for a game. We played our best then, because I guess we all felt like the big leaguers under the lights of some great stadium. Benny felt like that all the time. We all knew he was going to go on to bigger and better games, because every time we stopped to watch the sky on those nights, like regular kids, he was there to call us back. You see... For us, baseball was a game. But for Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez, baseball was life. Yeah, to me, it is the, the defining 4th of July sequence. I almost didn't include it. Um... Because to me that you know that sequence used to it was always one of my favorites. It's a movie that also has very as you know both of us are white men in our early thirties. We grew up with this movie, and um, you know I guess the older I get, the more I view that sequence as it's a lie. Like it's a it's a representation of an America that doesn't really exist, or when it did exist, it was at the expense of a lot of other people. And I guess that's what I mean in terms of the holiday meaning something different for me now. But that said, it is a movie about a bunch of kids playing baseball. And that is, that's a beautiful thing. Um, 
it's none of these kids' fault that I I view the holiday with more cynicism now than I did back then. And it is a really beautiful sequence. Like you said, they're playing a night game. And the reason why they play a night game, which is something they never do, but they say like, hey, this is the one day of summer we can actually play a night game because the fireworks are going to light up the sky. And we're going to be able to play baseball because of that. That's super cool. And I think that's such that's such a like romantic, fun idea of hanging out with your friends in the summer. So yeah, to me, this is the... The quintessential, the most romanticized quintessential idea of what Fourth of July should look like, right? Yeah. So we agree that was your like number four or something. That that's yeah. That would have been the first the first title I chose. All right, then we agree. The sandlot is getting carved into the mountain. Yeah, it's the. I'm, I'm gonna predict it's the only one that's gonna be in there. So since I did, since you chose five, I'll just give you my honorable mention. All right which is the other title uh, i was basically i figured the sandlot or this title had to go um and i ended up keeping the sandlot and the one i got rid of was independence day i know it's in the title it's it's you know for us the speech jaws is the first yeah jaws is the first movie people think you and i think of for fourth of july movies i'm sure for many it's independence day as it should be i mean it's the title of the movie to me, I this one is fun because it makes me think of uh, July 4th releases, like when Will Smith was the king of the 4th of July movie weekend. Um, so this is the title that makes me think of like going to the theater on a July 4th weekend. I really did, you know, going to the drive-in this week was great to kind of um, ease some of that pain, but I really did miss going to the theater this weekend and just seeing like a dumb a big dumb action movie it's just something i love to do this time of year and it was it was a bummer not being able to do that so um independence day is a goofy dumbass movie about an alien invasion it's so stupid and corny but i just love it i really do uh i still love it i've seen it recently i even saw the terrible sequel that came out four years ago and i love that even though it was objectively horrible um i just think it's a blast and if this is what you want you're like rah rah america thing to be about fighting aliens like sure i'm down with that i guess yeah that was kind of jaws and independence day and the sandlot were kind of the big three that i was like i don't like not that i don't want to mention them but like those seem like the easy picks but yeah. in so in, but we've in some ways out of our way now. yeah yeah so the sandlot was definitely for me like the one that i was like i kind of that's the one that i feel the most romantically attached to in terms of the fourth of july element of it um obviously independence day my just really quick about independence day i have to tell you um we watched the movie in class like you know like towards the end of the school year when it's like seventh eighth grade they're just like let's just put on some fucking movies and you know get you guys through this final week or two and i have such a clear memory of my eighth grade teacher putting that movie on and i was like independence day like i remember having seen it a lot at that point and kind of being like i don't want to watch this again but whatever, it was on, and this girl named Laura Florkey, sorry to call you out, Laura, but at some point, you know how there's like July 2nd, July 3rd, like title screens throughout the movie? Uh-huh. By the t- when July 4th came up, I verbally heard her say out loud in class, oh, that's why it's called Independence Day. Oh, my God. And I just, I just remember being in eighth grade, looking at her, just being like, you fucking dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> A dumb bitch jesus yeah i was a mean eighth grader i was just like laura florky you dumb bitch like how dare <laughs> oh man poor laura well she learned better late than never 
Yeah, she's probably married and happy now. But you know, she definitely did not follow the oh, the July second and third, and is building towards something. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you anyway. dumb bitch. Anyway, that's that when you. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that story, Phil. Yeah, that's my Independence Day story. All right, so let's keep cracking on the rocks of this Mount Rushmore. Okay, well, should I? Should I? Um, so the Sandlot is in there, and Independence Day was an honorable mention. So I'll I'll pick one now that would actually be on the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear what you want on the on the Rushmore for your personal Rushmore. <sighs> okay, so this is the other the uh, the top two were like my my instant choices besides the Sandlot. Um, these are two titles. I'm going to mention both, but they're only taking up one spot because I think I'm going to just remove one. Um, because one is more cynical and one is less cynical. So I think cynically, I will just mention this one, but not engrave it on Mount Rushmore. All right. And that, that title is Borat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, as I think about everything, uh, you know, I'm an American. I'm born and raised here. I do love America, even though it often sounds like I don't. But I, I just recognize we have so many problems. And I think uh, so few films are able to present so many of those problems in such an entertaining way as Borat. And that's why I wanted to mention it here. But I think I am going to leave that one off and be a little more... Uh, family friendly and open-minded in terms of my my own personal <laughs> political views and i'm going to nominate the movie friday friday okay wow we approached this very differently but friday uh, i love friday friday, friday. To, friday to me so yeah, pitch me Fourth friday. of july to me like like what we were saying about the sandlot to me is hanging out in the summer right in your neighborhood you just hang out in the summer in your neighborhood that to me is what the fourth of july means and that is what friday is that is the epitome of the movie friday is hanging out on a block in america with your buddies and just kind of living your life in a carefree way to me that's what the holiday should represent and i don't think any movie captures that better to me than friday it is to me a movie that i only like to watch in the summer I only will watch Friday. Like, if you came up to me on a wintry cabin day and said, let's put on Friday, I would say, fuck off. But if you wanted to watch it on a 100-degree day, like coming into my apartment sweating because the walk from your car to my door was too hot, I would be like, hell yeah, we could put on Friday. Friday, to me, is the perfect summer movie. The 4th of July is the summer holiday. Friday is going on my Mount Rushmore. What's up, man? Sorry. <laughs> Get your ass up. Oh. <laughs> oh, they was clowning you at work today, man. So what? I saw the tape. We kept rewinding it. Kind of looked like your head, but you can't really tell from the back. How you at? Oh, it's cool. Damn! Put your glasses back on. Nice. All right. Um, mine, my number four relates, I think, actually to Borat more than than the other one the the main reason being the immigrant experience in america so my my number four is probably the more serious pick of all of my picks actually it's probably the most depressing movie but my number four is jim sheridan's in america from 2002 um the story of the movie is it's a family of irish immigrants who uh illegally immigrate through canada into they end up in manhattan they end up living in hell's kitchen in this really shitty um 
basically crack den where where Dijmon Houston is uh, or Hunsu is a uh, an AIDS victim living with them, and it's basically about this life. It's got uh, Patty Constantine and Samantha Morton in it as well, and they're basically a couple who have lost their dead child. They come to America to kind of start a new life, and the movie, you know, it's been a while since I've seen it, but for some reason I thought of it. I remembered a scene where they're watching the fireworks, and that was one of the first things that kind of popped in my mind was they pull over, and they're watching the fireworks blow over the city, and they're thinking about being immigrants in the city and kind of just starting a new life, and that really appealed to me in terms of this experience that, you know, we have our own experience of America, but so many other people have this alternate experience of coming here and illegally living here and learning new customs and learning new people and new languages and trying really hard to build a new life for yourself. And it's something that, you know, people like you and I don't, we, we, you know, we had our lives built for us by other people. There's other families who come here as adults and who try to start anew. And the movie has always really moved me and I just have very fond memories of it. And I was happy when I went to go look at more information on it. And when I pulled up the poster um, on IMDb, the poster is the family sitting, it's a silhouette of the family by their car looking under the Brooklyn Bridge and the Brooklyn Bridge the under it is lined with the American flag and there's fireworks going off over the city. And I was like, yeah, like this movie's about America to me in so many ways. It's a smaller movie that I know was popular when it came out. Um, it, I don't think it has much of a legacy these days, to be honest with you. But for some reason, when you mentioned it, it was one of the titles that popped in my head. So that was In America by Jim Sheridan. I'd highly recommend seeking it out. Yeah, that's a great choice. That's uh, I have that DVD. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm also a fan. It's sitting in my closet right now. I would never would have thought of that movie. That's a fantastic choice. Yeah, it, um, it's like I said. There's scenes in that movie. There's one where um, I I actually had a similar experience at a carnival. You know, it's one of those things where you start losing money on a silly game. And you kind of get caught up in like, I, you know, I can beat this stupid fucking game. And of course it's, con, you know, there's a con going on. The house always wins. Like there's something to this game that you're not seeing. That's obvious that this fucking Carney's playing a trick on you. And there's a scene where the dad is like losing money and feeling such shame and trying to win it back. And his family's getting upset. And I had actually had like a moment almost exactly like that. And for some reason that scene is always just stuck with me. And it kind of kept the movie with me for all these years. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great movie. I'd recommend anyone check it out. It's probably the most serious of all the movies that I'm going to have on my list. It's definitely more serious than any of my choices. And, but I think that's good. I think we need something like that for July 4th because July 4th, it should just be about, um, fireworks and beer, you know, it, it really should. And I think that's a great choice because, um, you know, my, my choices are maybe, uh, serious in the sense that a lot of them are cynical but um i think that's a very heartfelt lovely addition i would be proud to put that on my mount rushmore all right what's your what, so, where are you going to next i have two left i'm debating which one to say first I'll, I'll start with this one because i think my last choice will be the most controversial pick and i don't know if you'll even allow it but here we go uh my next choice the third title i'm going to carve onto my mount rushmore 1985, written and directed by alien scribe Dan O'Bannon. I'm talking about Return of the Living Dead, baby. Return? You're going with Return, huh? Return of the Living Dead. Not an official member of the Living Dead. You know, it's not one of the George Romero movies, but I I like to consider it in that family, as I'm sure many do, even though it's, uh, you know, the zombies can talk and they can run. But Return of the Living Dead, I'm including, for those who don't know, it's about a small town, a zombie outbreak, uh takes over this little 
uh, block in this neighborhood. And it takes place on July 3rd. Over the course of July 3rd, and you even see, uh, you know, little like Chiron's July 3rd, 1.15 p.m., we eventually, uh, our, our heroes get trapped in this building as the outbreak is slowly starting to spread. We cross into midnight on July 4th, and I'm going to spoil this movie for people who haven't seen it. As we hit July 4th, they think help is coming, and what does the government do? They nuke that neighborhood into fucking oblivion. <laughs> Instead of trying to rescue our heroes and come in and take out the zombies they just say we are better off bombing this and so i think a lot of people have always wondered like why did dan o'bannon you know why why was it so important to be to have this story take place on july 3rd you know it seems kind of um on a surface level it's it doesn't really seem important it almost seems like a grab to try to make it a holiday movie or something but I think obviously there's a lot of social satire there and commentary that he's trying to make about the way the American government operates and will handle problems. And uh, it is one of the most memorable endings in horror history to me. The first time I saw that movie, um, it got really attached to that group of characters who were like, you know, basically the main group we follow. There are other characters in the movie, but the main group we follow are like just a bunch of punk kids hanging out in a graveyard getting drunk. Like, just typical teenagers in the 1980s, like literal punk teenagers. And it ends with all of them being blown away by, by their own government. Uh, I think it was, it's a scathing critique that's masked as a really silly zombie film. And I think it's a brilliant movie. And when I decided to do this Mount Rushmore, that has always been like my ace in the hole choice for 4th of July movies that I think not enough people think of, except for horror fanatics, because they're aware of that movie. Yeah, I've, yeah I, I've seen that movie, and I was I kind of forgot about the 4th of July aspect of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, it's not like it's not totally on the surface. Like I said, it's just there in the text letting you know what day it is. Like, it's not something people talk about. It's not a plot. Like, they're not getting ready for 4th of July or anything. You know, I think he just decided. He's like, I will just let these little chirons tell you what time of the year it is let you know what i'm going for here what i'm trying to say it was a really brilliant choice because it didn't bog the movie down um with his political beliefs you know he just let that setting do all the talking for him which i think was a, a brilliant choice and i think that's why it's a it's a classic to me a classic fourth of july movie and obviously i had to get a horror movie on the list yeah a side note did you know i i just saw this the other day that george romero has a, a book coming out uh, I did not see that. Huh? It is called The Living Dead. It's a zombie book. Like a novel? Yeah, it's a, it's a new novel called The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss as a co-writer. Um, but yeah, so some kind of it's a book. Was it yeah. something he actually finished? Because he's been dead for a while. <laughs> yeah, it says a lifelong Romero fan. Krauss was honored to be asked by Romero's widow to complete The Living Dead. So it was, a, okay. it was a book that Romero had started and it was finished right. by this other guy. Cool. I'll, I will definitely check that out. Yeah, that comes out in, I think I saw August. Am I right? August? August 4th is when it comes out. So, yeah, you can check that out. That's coming out this year. Nice. All right. My number three is something that when you first suggested this is one of the titles that you instantly threw out because you know me so well, and I couldn't deny it. I, I actually, I think I was trying to dodge it for a little while. But I, I couldn't deny it, and it is uh, 1998's Primary Colors. I, I knew it. I knew it. 
you told me no, and I'm like, fuck you, you're putting it on. But I said you it know? wasn't. I see. No, I said it wasn't my number one, which uh, it's not my number three. So, so just so we're clear, um, oh, you still, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said it was related to my number one, and you'll find out, I guess, when we get there. But primary colors. I rewatched The Candidate today with Robert Redford from the 70s just to kind of compare the two because for some reason in my mind, those were the two top movies about political campaigns in my mind. And rewatching them today, I can firmly state I'm in the primary colors camp. It's been one of my favorite movies since I was very young, and it is about the Bill Clinton campaign. And the reason I love it, you can watch the whole scene on YouTube if you want. It's the end of the movie, so maybe if you don't want to be spoiled, I guess. But it's it's loosely about the Bill Clinton campaign, and if you, if you can guess, he won the presidency. So that's kind of how the movie ends. Sorry. Anyway, the movie is largely, though, whereas The Candidate is about Robert Redford's, as a candidate, his personality and his personal experience through his can, campaign, the, the Primary Colors is primarily about the, the staff surrounding him. Uh, the main candidate. And while there is a lot of uh, time and attention spent on John Travolta's character, uh, so much of it is about the staff. And the reason I love the movie is the moral conundrum of the movie is basically about what moral con- what moral choices are you willing to live with in order to be a winner, to be a leader, and you know basically what it takes to run this country. Basically, you can't become president of this country without getting your hands a little dirty. And in some in some cases, some people are willing to get very dirty in order to do that. Some people are willing to walk that line. Some people aren't willing to do it at all. And the movie asks, through the John Travolta character and through this new hire who's a very idealistic, young, black um, uh I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his um, his position now, but he's a campaign coordinator who who joins the campaign. Um, he comes from this long legacy of civil rights activists, and he joins the campaign to basically act as one of their black surrogates, to one of, be one of the people who help him through the campaign. And through their relationship, they end up discussing a lot of what he has to do, because you find out, like Bill Clinton, he has a lot of affairs. He has done some terrible things in the past. And it's about kind of like, well, this guy's done some terrible things. But if he gets in the position to create laws, he'll do more for what I believe in than this other guy who's also done terrible things. And it's kind of, you know, the movie's about what terrible things are we as a country willing to live with and the people that we let lead us. And, you know, I think that's a huge question now as we're heading into an election year. I think it's a question that's constantly defining us every election year, every, you know, year that this country goes on. We're kind of just looking at the presidency as, you know, this person, this personality is defining us as a country for the next four to eight years. And what does that say about us and who we are? And, Right now, we it feels very morally bankrupt, and it's because we put a morally bankrupt man in charge. And so, I don't know. It's a movie I've always wrestled with. I think it deals with these issues complex and with complexity, and it's hilarious and fun and fast moving. And I, I love the movie. It's a masterpiece. It's it's one of my picks. Primary Colors. Go check it out. I would have been wrong not to do it. What I did now, I did for Libby, but it wasn't right. Picker hadn't quitted or won the nomination, gone down and taken the party with him. It was only a question of when. And how. And who pushed him off the cliff when he was That's falling. Right. But those are fine points, Henry. Those are how many angels can you fit on the, uh, the, the head of a pinpoint? This is hardball. Now, you're telling me that you just discovered that and you don't have the stomach for it? I know you better than that. We spent too much time together. This is it, Henry. This is the price you paid to lead. You don't think that Abraham Lincoln was a whore before he was a president? He had to tell his little stories and then smile his shit-eating backcountry grin. 
And he did it just so that he would one day have the opportunity to stand in front of the nation and appeal to the better angels of our nature. And that's where the bullshit stops. That's what it's all about. So we have the opportunity to make the most of it, to do it the right way. You know, as well as I do, there are plenty of people playing this game that don't think that way. They're willing to sell their souls, crawl through sewers, lie to people, divide them, play on the worst fears for nothing, just for the prize. I love that choice. I haven't seen that movie in a very long time, but I, I was always a big fan of it. And um, yeah, I guess that, that you would maybe choose that for a reason, because I think it's a, it absolutely deserves to be on a July 4th Mount Rushmore. So here's the thing, Phil. I only have one choice left. You have two, right? I have two, yeah. That's so because we share the Sandlot, yeah. Yeah, well, because that was your number five. Why don't you give me your number two, and then I'll give you my final one, and we'll finish off with your final choice. All right, well, my number two is pretty easy because it's pretty popular, and it is the most um, pop, um, jingoistic title of mine. It's kind of the flip of my number one. Um, my number two is Top Gun, starring Mr. It. Mr. Tom it. I Cruise. Think, I, think, I think I know your number one now, too. But we'll Okay. Um, yeah, my number two, I, anyone who knows me knows I grew up with Top Gun. It was my older brother's favorite movie when we were like eight years old, which meant that I was just inundated with Top Gun every day, multiple times a day, even for many years of my youth. And somehow over the years, this developed into a genuine love of this strange, strange movie about masculinity and the military. And it's just Americana. And it, you know, I actually was trying to decide because I almost thought of like a Michael Bay movie. I was like, you know, Armageddon is pretty jingoistic in terms of just waving about Armageddon was a consideration. for me. Yeah. Like I was thinking, I was like, man, Michael Bay is like one of the most quintessentially American filmmakers, like almost in a, in a bad way. But like when I think of him, I think about sunsets and American flags being waved against them, you know? And yeah. yeah so then, but I chose a movie instead that I genuinely love, which is Top Gun, which I think I is, genuinely love Armageddon. That's the one thing I'll say about Michael Bay. I, yeah, I haven't seen Armageddon. I don't hate Armageddon. We watched the rock, um, at some point in the last month and I fucking love the rock. So yeah, the rock's great anyway, but yeah, my number two top gun, I think it speaks for itself. It's, it's, jingoistic as fuck but i love it i would have been stunned if it wasn't on your list so glad to see it there uh so we each have one choice left i'll, I'll go with mine um all right maybe it's a cheat uh do you want to make one guess before is it lame is no <laughs> i know it's about it, the french revolution but I'll, I don't I'll know. give you i'll give you a big clue all right it is not a movie it's a tv show is it john adams It is The Twilight Zone. Now, the reason why I picked The Twilight Zone, obviously I can talk about uh, its social commentary, the fact that the only reason it was able to get made, Rod Serling was a guy who had a lot to say about what was going on in America, socially, politically. He was a revolutionary. Uh, He was a socialist. He was very much ingrained in the civil rights movement in terms of his creative process. And he tried and failed multiple times to get shows off the ground. The reason why The Twilight Zone exists is because he realized, I can bury the things I want to say about America under the guise of genre. If I frame it as a horror story or an alien invasion or something like that, I could get away with telling all these things that I want to say. And the censors 
and the studios will be none the wiser. And that's exactly what happened. And because of that, he was able to create one of the lasting shows in television in American history. So that's one of the reasons. The other big reason, uh, and this is superficial, the reason why I love that show, the reason why I ended up loving that show so much is because for years, and it's still happening now, I guess, on a TV channel called Decades, which I unfortunately I don't have, but obviously I have the Blu-rays and it's available to stream now, so it's not as big as a concern. But every New Year's Day and every July 4th, they would marathon The Twilight Zone on TV. Um, it was on Sci-Fi Channel for me growing up for years, years and years and years. And on July 4th and on New Year's Day, every year, those two days, I would just watch hours and hours of The Twilight Zone. And that's how I fell in love with that show. So just for me personally, it obviously has all those reasons I mentioned why I think it fits. But when I think of the day, July 4th, a big part of that is watching The Twilight Zone. And even to this day, while I don't have access to the marathons on TV anymore, I still do. And I did it yesterday. I put on at least a couple episodes of the original Twilight Zone and uh, watch it because that that's what I think of when I think of July 4th is the twilight zone so that is my number one by far awesome i that's an interesting choice i'm not going to disqualify it um i think Can I guess say, yours? yeah i was going to say i'd love to hear your guess i mean you, you i hope you figured it out all the but, president's men no oh fuck huh huh it's very related to primary colors well i guess the american president you said no no all right go ahead i don't know that all right, my number one movie. You, when you first tasked me with this, you're like, hey, you know, hey, I have an idea. Let's talk about this. I said, sure. And then I thought, what film is my, you know, what film instantly comes to mind? And I knew it right away. I was like, oh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a, it's got one of the best Fourth of July sequences of all time. It's subversive. It's about America. It's got style. It's everything I love in movies. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is 1981's. Brian De Palma's blowout. Oh, oh my God, the ending. Of course. All right. So for those of you who have not seen Blowout, it is a 1981 thriller starring John Travolta, which is how it was related to Primary Colors. Oh, what a choice, Phil. Yes. Um, Blowout is um, it's a remake of Michael uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's uh, Blow Up, which is about a uh, sound recordist who is out recording some sound one night when he happens to record the audio of an assassination or what he believes is a political assassination um, that relates to a congressman who is running for re-election. It has a lot to do with the uh, Chattanooga stuff that went ha- that happened with Kennedy. It has a lot of reverberations of the paranoia of the Nixon years and Watergate and audio recording and taping. It's it's a paranoid thriller. And most importantly, when you mentioned it, the end of the movie, I'm sorry to spoil, takes place during a giant 4th of July parade. And I, I kind of don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But the final images of the movie revolve around an American flag and John Travolta and a shitload of fireworks going off. And it's one of the saddest, most just disturbing, not disturbing necessarily, but just saddest endings. It's unforgettable, an unforgettable ending with fireworks and the 4th of July. And it's subverting all of that. And the movie is about this American paranoia and about the fear that's going on underneath everything. And yeah, it's a great thriller. It's one of John Travolta's best performances. It's my favorite Brian De Palma movie. Yeah, it's just, when you said it, I instantly went to the, the ending shots of that movie with John Travolta and Nancy Allen. 
Oh man, that's I. That is such a good choice. Wow, great job. Thank you. That never, that never crossed my mind. It was the I first thing that, that crossed my mind. Yeah, and then there were so many. I'd like yesterday on Twitter, there were so many gifts of the ending of that movie. I was like, oh, he's going to see that, and he's going to be like, oh, of course, of course. Um. Yeah, I would say for those listening, if you haven't seen that movie, drop what you're doing and watch it. It is a masterpiece. I I agree with you. It's uh that's that's a lot for, uh, coming from me, the guy who made Carrie, but no, I agree. That is the Palma's best movie. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got a crazy filmography, you know, some people I'm sure say Scarface, I'm sure some say Carlito's Way, you know, like Jake, but uh, you know, He's, it, it, blowout's incredible. Can't say enough about Blowout. Um, sorry to interrupt the discussion, but breaking news on my app, uh, New York Times app, Ennio Morricone, RIP, just passed away at 91. No, no. Yeah. I mean, he's old. You know, as to quote Robert Altman, the death of an old man is never a tragedy, but uh, RIP, Ennio Morricone, one of the greats. RIP, one of the greatest composers film has ever seen over 500 movies according to this new york times article he died uh 91 years old um he finally won his oscar yeah admitted to the hospital last week after falling and fracturing his femur oh god that had to be painful um but yes uh he worked with De Palma, right he did the untouchables yeah, yeah, that, and so. Morricone did. Yeah, he did scores for that. Um, I think he's been brought back into life for modern audiences through Quentin Tarantino, but yeah. Yeah, obviously he's most renowned for the spaghetti westerns he did with Sergio Leone. Yeah, he he won the Oscar for the Hateful Eight. Right. Yeah, he that was his first. Fi- he finally won an Oscar for the Hateful Eight. It's fucking crazy. It took that long. Yeah, there's the guy. He did the score like the most one of the most iconic scores ever with the good, bad, the ugly. But anyway, R.I.P. Ennio. We uh, you were you were a golden god. Um, but that's our list. I would say if I were to combine your choices and mine, and make the the four film Jaws Memorial Mount Rushmore, we both pick the Sandlot. So I think that has to be on there. Of my choices, I'm going to say The Return of the Living Dead because I think it says a lot about America, but it's coaxed in a, in a great genre masterpiece. I think Blowout absolutely is a brilliant choice. And I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with In America. Top Gun, we kind of have our, our fun jingoism and a fun family film with the Sandlot. So I think In America is an important choice to get the immigrant experience in there. Yeah, I'm good with that. Those I think those four make a very fun, interesting Mount Rushmore. That is uh, not what you would maybe expect. Well, I would fight for blowout, but um, we'll see. I said, I said, I said blowouts in there. Oh, I thought you, I don't know. I, for some reason, I thought you said Twilight Zone, Return of the Living Dead. No, no, no. The Sandlot, the Sandlot, oh, Return of the Living Dead, Blowout, and In America. Oh, for I don't. For some reason, I thought you were including Twilight Zone. I, I added that. No. If I, if I did, that was a mistake. No. Sandlot, Return of the Living Dead, Blowout in America. That is our communal Mount Rushmore. I'm texting you a picture that I saw today of Mount Rushmore, and it reali- it made me realize how shitty Mount Rushmore is. Oh, yeah. The scale of it, how dumb yeah. it looks. Yeah. I'd never, like, it's one of those, you, you often see photos taken from underneath and getting a low angle and making it look like it's the size of a mountain. And then I saw this one picture today. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just like a chunk of a giant mountain. It looks very small. And I'm sure I'd be disappointed if I saw it in person. 
yeah, and it's unfinished. It's dumb. Uh, there's a great cartoon of somebody, uh, a couple walking along a path, and they see a big mountain range, and it's just four naked butts with legs. And they said, well, I can only guess that we're somewhere near Mount Rushmore. It's uh, very funny huh. to me. That's hilarious. I'm laughing. Thank you, buddy. All right. Well, that's our Mount Rushmore. Nice. I like it. I'm, I'm very happy with it. Um, yeah, so I like good. that we took very different approaches. We didn't overlap really except for the Sandlot. But yeah, that's that, I'm, I'm happy with our list. Yeah. And if I was going to go jingoistic, obviously I could have just uh, stuck with um, Independence Day. But my other choice was Rocky Four. So shout out to that for my jingoistic choice. Yeah. Rocky Four. There was a number of, like we mentioned a few of them. There was any number of choices of movies about America that kind of popped up like Patton. And a few other things like that that I was I, I thought about including, but ultimately didn't. Yeah. All right. Is uh, so is that the show for this week? You good? That's the show, baby. All right. Well, let's do some wrap up and recommendations. Do you have anything to recommend for the people this week, Mister Tom? Uh, no. I um, just got a Blu-ray of a concert a uh, film from the band The Cure. I've been listening to The Cure. Listen to The Cure. <laughs> uh, there's there uh, the scene in The Wedding Singer when Adam Sandler, he's like, I've been listening to The Cure a lot. And then he starts singing his, uh, and somebody kill me, please. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you know where my head's at. Yeah, so um, yeah, when you were like, I've been listening to The Cure, I, I, I instantly heard Adam Sandler in The Wedding Singer. Good, as you should. Any recs from you? Yeah. Um, this week I started, um, I mentioned him last week on the show because he interviewed uh, that fucking asshole, Mike Pence, on Face the Nation. And uh, John Dickerson of CBS, he released a book that I just started listening to on Audible, and it is called The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. And basically what the book is about, the premise of the book, is that over the years, um, what we have come to ask of any American president is basically undoable. There's no way any per one person can live up to the expectations of what we have now asked that job to do because we're asking one person to be in charge of the military, have control over um, the the state by state issues, you know, like whether it's like abortion or social issues. We're asking them to be the consoler in chief when it comes to things like hurricanes or shootings or whatever. We're asking them to handle you know, hurricanes, we're asking them to handle right now coronavirus, we're asking them to um, be charming and give interviews and be available and be transparent. But also, you know, there were, there's just so many layers of what we're asking of any person. And everyone has a different impression of what the presidency needs to do for them or do for the country, or what the role of the president is. And basically, the book uh, is about the last 100 years and how it's changed the presidency into this almost undoable job that no one could ever possibly hope to succeed in. And I've found it a very fascinating listen so far. And uh, it just came out in June. And it's it's very good. It's called The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. It's by John Dickerson. Cool. Uh, I, that reminded me, I just finished reading Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which is a fantastic book. You recommended that last it. week. You did. That was your recommendation. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The books I'm reading now are not good enough to recommend, so... Um, the only other thing I would throw out is um, My Girls in Heim. I mentioned last week they had an album come out. I've continued to listen to it. I think it's fantastic. I don't think we're going to have time to do a full review on the show, but uh, it's been a nice 
it's been a nice uh, balm for me in the last couple weeks since it's. Been I out. agree. I've listened to it a few times, and I think it's uh, my favorite record from them. So check it out. Women in Music Part Three is the name of it. People should people should go listen to. It. All right, that's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. It should be available in iTunes and the Google Store and Stitcher. You can also send us an email or a comment at howsthatdaypod at gmail. That's all one word. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the theme music. You can find Tom at Big Fat Bond. What is it? Big Fat Bond? Yeah. Big Fat Bond and uh, Bindi Tom Bindi, all one word. And you can find me at Phil underscore Weedenheft, P. Weedenheft on Instagram. Look for us there. Follow me on Letterboxd. You can see daily reviews of everything I've been watching. And uh, with that, Tom, I'll see you next week. Okay. I love you and love everybody who listens. Be All safe right. out there. All five of you. We love you. Bye. <laughs>